This time I'm sure for a Feldman vacation. So go up to Nantucket, find the man who can suck it. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinell, who will not be joining us tonight. Feel better. He's got a cold, so feel better. Professor Mike Steinell, welcome to the mop-up for October 17th. I'm David Feldman, coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is about 63 degrees and partly cloudy. Yes, so here we go. How do we do this? How am I going to do this today? All right. All right. It is now 236 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. At least four people, including a pregnant woman, died on Monday from a drone strike in Kiev. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says 65,000 Russian soldiers have been killed since the beginning of the invasion. Russia says that number is about 6,000. Meanwhile, 11 people are now dead, 15 wounded, after two gunmen launched an attack on a Russian military training center along the Ukrainian border on Saturday. A spokesperson for Russia's defense ministry says the two assailants were from the former Soviet Republic of Tajikistan. Vladimir Putin says he is almost done mobilizing 300,000 new troops for a winter offensive in Ukraine. And there are now reports of able-bodied Russian men being dragged from their families and forced to enlist. Hundreds of thousands of men are reportedly leaving Russia to avoid the fighting. For more on this, we will be talking to Professor Anne Lee at about... Uh, in about an hour, she writes over the Daily Kos, a nightly update on the war in Ukraine. Ukraine at one time was the seventh largest nation in Europe in terms of population with more than 4,000. What am I talking about? 44 million people, but no longer. Take a look at this map of refugees. This is a graphic made available through Creative Commons. Ukraine is being emptied out. Look at those numbers. According to the U.N., more than 14 million Ukrainians, 14 million Ukrainians out of a country that used to have 44 million, 14 million Ukrainians have fled since fighting began. Look at this map. Poland has taken in 6,782,000. Romania has taken in 1,324,000. Russia has taken in close to 3 million. Hungary, uh, 1,500,000. Slovakia, 850,000. 655,000 to Moldova. And about 16,000, 17,000 into Belarus. Okay? So, meanwhile, the UN said today that 4 million children living in Russia, Ukraine, and Central Europe are now living in poverty because of the fighting in Ukraine. So why is that? Why are they living in poverty? Because war drives up the cost of living. Let me put it another way. So Joe Biden, Wall Street, and the central bankers like this overdone stooge, Jerome Powell, who you can see behind me. So 
people like Jerome Powell can understand this. Inflation. Inflation is the cost of living. That's what inflation is. It's the cost of living. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting the words our anti-democratic central bankers choose? Isn't it? They, they use terms like uh, inflation as opposed to the cost of living. When Russia invades Ukraine, they'll say it's Putin who is driving up the cost of living. But when the chairman of the Federal Reserve raises interest rates so workers can no longer ask for more money, he's combating inflation. He's fighting inflation. This is what Jerome Powell has clearly said. He says he is raising interest rates to cool off the economy in order to bring down wage inflation. He said that he's not going to bring down the cost of college, health care, or our rent. That's not what he wants to do, and that's not what he can do. He wants to bring down wages, and he wouldn't dare call that the cost of living. He calls that inflation, because if he were to call it the cost of living— then people would draw a connection between the actions of our central bankers and life or death, right? Wages is the difference between life and death. What you get paid or don't get paid is the difference between life and death. So you're not going to call call this the cost of living. You're going to call it something more anodyne, like inflation. He calls it inflation because in America, if we cared about what it costs to live, we wouldn't have a central banker right now putting downward pressure on wages. If we called it the cost of living as opposed to inflation, instead of raising and lowering interest rates, which has no effect whatsoever on inflation, uh, Americans, we wouldn't leave it to the central bankers to measure and then supposedly ameliorate the cost of living. What do these bankers know about the cost of living? What could Jerome Powell possibly know about the cost of living? J.P. Morgan Chase reported its third quarter earnings last week, and they came in way beyond expectations. And Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, says he's expecting a very profitable end of the year, and he's expecting 2023 to be even more profitable. Why? Because he says during the earnings call that banks benefit when the Fed raises interest rates. When the Fed raises interest rates, it means banks can charge more for loans. But try putting your money into a savings account with J.P. Morgan Chase. Good luck getting interest rates that reflect those rising interest rates that Jerome Powell is forcing on us. Right now, you're lucky if you have any money to save. You're lucky if you can get 2.5% if you deposit it in a savings account at J.P. Morgan Chase. 
banks no longer pay you to deposit money the way they used to. So interest rates hikes, interest rate hikes only benefit the banks because that's who Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, that's who he works for. The banks, right? He raises interest rates. So now if you want a loan, they charge you more. They charge you more on your credit card. But if you're lucky enough to have some cash left over and put it into a savings account, you don't get high interest rates on your deposits. Jerome Powell isn't fighting the high cost of living. He doesn't care if you live or die. And he's not fighting inflation. So let's talk about the cost of living or inflation. Okay, let's talk about what it actually costs to stay alive. The cost of living would go down dramatically if Joe Biden put an end to the fighting in Ukraine. I started talking about Ukraine. It's, it's about inflation. It's all related. Where are the peace talks? This is a grinding war of attrition. What we've got going on in Ukraine is a grinding war of attrition. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said so two months ago. All you need to do is listen to what these people say, right? Jerome Powell says, I'm raising interest rates to lower wages. The uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, two months ago said, short of negotiation, this war in Ukraine will be one of grinding attrition. Land lost, land regained, land lost, land regained. Wars like the one that's going on in Ukraine, they never end. They never end because there's too much at stake now for too many stakeholders. Now, what do I know? I'm an idiot. Maybe there'll be a coup and Putin will be relieved of his duties and there'll be peace. What do I know? What do I know other than war, all war, is the promise of victory just around the corner. This war in Ukraine ain't ending until America gets involved by stopping it. This war will not end until America says enough. Most Americans polled say enough, which is why we never vote on a war. We never ask the American people, do you want to go to war? Congress really doesn't declare war anymore, do they? They give a war authorization, but they don't want to dirty their hands with this perpetual state of war America finds itself in. This war has to stop. 14 million refugees have left Ukraine. That doesn't count the millions still in Ukraine who have been displaced. That's three times the number of Syrian refugees. Remember the civil war in Syria? Remember all the refugees that came flooding into Europe that are still coming into Europe? This is three times the number of Syrian refugees. We're talking about 14 million refugees who have left Ukraine. What 
are we talking about, if not the 14 million refugees who have left Ukraine? What does victory look like? I know what defeat looks like. I can turn on the news. What does victory look like for America in Ukraine? What does victory look like for Western Europe in Ukraine? Again, I'm rooting for Zelensky. I think the world would be better off without Vladimir Putin. But we all know that this war in Ukraine is a proving ground for American weapons. I talked about this on the show countless times last week. Professor Ann Lee, who will be joining us in an hour, we talked about this last week. She pointed out that weapons can only be tested. You only know if they work when you put them through real-life battle situations. We are using Ukraine to test our anti-ballistic missiles that we're selling to Taiwan and Japan and the rest of Europe. If you work for Raytheon, you are monitoring this war very closely and learning to adjust your anti-ballistic missiles to make sure they work in real conditions so you can sell them to other countries. Ukraine is a proving ground for American weapons manufacturers, the same way Hitler used Spain as a proving ground for his weapons. This is what's partly going on in Ukraine. I can assure you there is no victory in this war or any war, just record profits. The cost of living is going up, and so are corporate profits. Stock market was up nearly 3% today, and it's earnings season. See, it's all out in the open. All you have to do is pay attention to earnings season. And they tell us inflation is eating into profits. Doesn't seem so. Stock market's up. You know, uh... There's a kind of inflation that Jerome Powell and the central bankers are actually quite fond of, and that is the rising price of stocks. That's, they don't complain about that inflation. And the war in Ukraine. End it. And that will lower the cost of food and the cost of oil. Now, I'll keep repeating this because I'm stunned that most people don't know this. One third of inflation is what it costs to rent. Not what it costs to buy a house, what it costs to rent a house, to rent an apartment. One third of how we measure inflation is what does it cost to rent? I will be a broken record on this. Half the people who rent in America live at below the poverty line. So you want to fight inflation? It has nothing to do with raising and lowering interest rates. It's rent control. It's forbidding landlords like Blackstone, which at one time was the biggest landlord in Spain. It's forbidding out-of-state, out-of-country landlords from raising, jacking up the price of rent. Problem solved. You've, you've cured inflation, but they're not going to do that. Uh, 
you end the war, you solve inflation. When you have 16 million Ukrainians displaced, refugees, that creates increased demand for housing in Central Europe. So rents go up. The key drivers of inflation are rent, food, and oil. You put an end to this war, you've kicked inflation's ass. F. Jerome Powell. All he wants to do is put downward pressure on wages. He doesn't give a rat's ass about the cost of living. The International Monetary Fund said this week, the single largest cause of inflation is the war in Ukraine. That's the International Monetary Fund. You know, the gangsters, the loan sharks, even the mobsters are saying the single largest cause of inflation is the war in Ukraine. So when does this war end? It doesn't. It doesn't end. Wars like this don't end. It's a mobster bust-out. That's what it is. It's an old-fashioned bust-out. These wars go on for years. This is a border conflict. Border conflicts last forever. The war between Iraq and Iran lasted eight years, with America, by the way, providing weapons to both sides. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in December of 1979, and they finally left Afghanistan in 1989. And we know how well that turned out for Russia and for America, which funded the Mujahideen, which turned into Al-Qaeda. These wars never end. Ukraine isn't ending anytime soon. And I fall prey to it, right? I read, I pick up the paper. Oh, they took parts of Kherson. We're winning. No, we're not winning. Nobody wins a war. America's invasion of Iraq started in 2003. The fighting continues, just not with American troops. That war isn't ending. Uh, America, uh, our invasion of Afghanistan, what did that last, 20 years? That war isn't ending. You know what will end? American interest. We, you and me, will move on. We, who's, I, I can't tell you who the, the president of Iraq is. Did you know that it is officially a, a theocratic Muslim nation? It's written into our Constitution. Did, everybody, did anybody ever tell you that Iraq is officially a Muslim country. One of the reasons we went there was to put an end to theocracies. Read the Constitution of Iraq. Uh, so the fighting will continue. The fighting will continue because wars never end. Uh, fighting will continue in Syria, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Gaza. But we will move on. We as Americans who finance so much of this war and profit off so much of this war, will move on, you know, when it comes to the granular specifics. We will be tricked into compartmentalizing each conflict, you know. We'll forget who's fighting who, and we'll focus on our own problems, like inflation, right? We have to worry about inflation. Yes, we have to bring down our prices, 
right? That's the problem. And we will be lied to about inflation. They will ensnare the gullible, of which there are many, and say, for example, the only way to bring down the cost of oil is... We just need to drill, baby, drill! Yeah. Uh, that would be Sarah Palin, who's campaigning for Congress right now. Drill, baby, drill. What this miserable, Botox-soaked runt of the protozoan litter, she was the runt of the protozoan litter when she was born, she doesn't know when she says drill, baby, drill, she, but she doesn't know because she's too stupid to know this. She doesn't know that President Barack Obama, as a favor to struggling oil companies, pegged the price of America's domestic oil to the world market. So no matter how much we drill, baby, drill, the price of oil isn't going to be set by domestic demand, even though it's comes from America, that oil, what we pay for it, depends on OPEC. It's pegged to the world market, which means OPEC sets the price of oil by turning on or off the spigot. So we can't drill, baby, drill our way out of this, you idiot. What we can do is get off this fetid crap fossil fuels before we all die. We need to stop fighting wars for oil and we need to get off oil. People are dying from oil and they are dying for oil. We're dying for something that's killing us. Now, Ukraine, what nobody talks about is about partly, maybe mostly about oil and gas. Nobody ever mentions that, do they? Ukraine has the second biggest known gas reserves in all of Europe. One trillion cubic meters of natural gas reserves. Nine billion tons of oil sitting underneath Ukraine that we know about. This is mostly, partly about oil and gas. And trust me, if the military tells you this war isn't about oil and gas, it's about oil and gas. You cannot separate war from oil and gas. You cannot separate climate catastrophe from oil and gas. And you cannot separate war from the high price of oil and gas, which means you cannot separate war climate catastrophe from inflation, period. War causes inflation, period. Period. The single biggest driver of inflation, actually it's the second biggest driver of inflation now, it's changed. I'll tell you who the first biggest driver of inflation is in a second. The second biggest driver of inflation worldwide is war. You want to bring down inflation? End the war. End the war in Ukraine. Joe Biden pushing for these weapons being sent to Ukraine. He's the divorce attorney telling me to keep fighting. Fight, David. You need to fight. 
She can't get away with this. And so on principle, the divorce attorney convinces me on principle, I must fight until there's nothing left to fight over. Joe Biden is a divorce attorney. He's he's saying to Ukraine, fight, fight, fight until the divorce lawyer can no longer be paid because there's nothing left. So he washes his hands of the situation. I offered you justice, but all you cared about was revenge. You were unfocused. Um, Get yourself a new lawyer. And uh, then you get your divorce and you ask, what was that all about? Why am I broke? Because the divorce attorney, Joe Biden, wouldn't let you settle. Because there's too much money to be made in prolonging the fighting. That's what divorce attorneys do, and that's what America does with our military-industrial complex and Blackstone and the investors who are meeting secretly with Zelensky. Not so secretly. Blackstone is holding high-level meetings with Zelensky right now on how to rebuild Ukraine after we've destroyed it. It's like Halliburton and Dick Cheney rebuilding, thinking they were going to rebuild Iraq and get the oil wells after we destroyed it. You get paid destroying the country, and then you get paid rebuilding the country after you destroyed it. Nice racket we got going here in America. I just wish we we could get rich off this. You know, people say, well, you like you like the way you live here in America, don't? No, I don't like the way I live here. Where's all this? Where, where's all the treasure we're supposedly uh, looting from these countries? I'm not seeing it. War is the second biggest driver of inflation in America. And, you know, inflation, they tell you it's bad. You know who benefits from inflation? Wealthy people. Because higher prices mean higher yields on their investments and more money in profits. Pay attention. It's earnings season on Wall Street. I know it's too complicated, right? It's too co- Pay attention to earnings season. Inflation is hurting corporate America. You know who suffers from inflation? Everybody else. Not the rich, not the big corporations. Everybody else suffers because they can't afford anything. The rich and the powerful, they pay think tanks to blame inflation on higher wages. Right? This this inflation, it only screws over the poor and the, the working people who are made to feel guilty because they want to be paid more because they can't keep up with inflation. And they're fed this lie by these corporate funded think tanks that inflation is caused by unions and workers wanting more money. War is good for the wealthy because during the war they make money and then right after the war they make even more because war causes inflation to skyrocket. And that's good for the wealthy. After World War II, when price controls ended, inflation in America jumped to 28%. War causes inflation. A year after America entered the Korean War, inflation jumped to 21%. 
America finally pulled out of Vietnam on March 29th, 1973. Inflation at that time was about 9%. It's pretty high. And that was with Nixon's wage and price freezes, which after we pulled out of Vietnam, those wage and price uh, freezes were lifted and inflation jumped to 11% a year after we pulled out. War is the second biggest driver of inflation. And the rich love inflation. They love skyrocketing prices of stocks, real estate, art, homes, watches, baseball cards. They love inflation because they love making more money. People are willing to pay more for what they already own. The rich and powerful love inflation. They can, in the 70s, they were getting double-digit returns on, on T-bills. So war is the second biggest driver of inflation. Let me repeat. You want to you beat inflation? End the war in Ukraine. But you know what the single biggest driver of inflation is? Oil. Not what we pay for oil at the pump. I'm talking about what we pay for oil in the way of climate catastrophe. The single biggest driver of inflation is climate catastrophe. But the Federal Reserve is not going to say that. Wall Street won't say that. They'll say it's supply chain issues. They'll say inflation is caused by supply chain issues and, and uh, not the man-made flooding, not the man-made fires. It's not caused, the, the, the supply chain issues aren't caused by the man-made drought, right? If they said these supply chain issues were caused by climate catastrophe, which they are, then too many people would start to think, you know, maybe we should get off fossil fuels. Okay? Doesn't, you don't have to be an economist to figure out that supply chain issues drive up inflation and these supply chain issues are caused by climate catastrophe. In fact, you only a person who's not an economist is allowed to figure that out. Uh, these these uh, supply chain issues that they'll say, oh, it's caused by the war in Ukraine. Partly true, but on a much bigger scale, these supply chain issues are caused by climate catastrophe. The war in Ukraine causes supply chain issues. COVID causes supply chain issues. Climate change is... World War III through World War 300. They can't, COVID and the war in Ukraine cannot compete with the supply chain issues caused by climate catastrophe, which, and therefore, this inflation that raising or lowering interest rates is not going to tackle. The oil and gas industry, industry is waging war against our planet. And that war against our planet is causing inflation on a massive scale beyond anything 
our economic system, the people who run it, can comprehend. The geniuses at Davos, Jerome Powell, that of our Federal Reserve, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, the uh, head of lettuce in Great Britain, and whoever the chancellor of the exchequer in Great Britain is today, they do not have the vocabulary to deal with the economic fallout from climate catastrophe because they are the cause of climate catastrophe. All they're trained to do is make it worse and then point fingers at the people who don't cause climate catastrophe and say they're responsible for inflation. They will recognize supply chain issues, but they refuse to accept that these supply chain issues stem from oil and gas and only oil and gas. And at the very root of these supply chain issues, if you dig down to the source of our supply chain issues, you will strike oil and you will strike gas because oil and gas is the cause of all our supply chain issues. Therefore, oil and gas is the cause of inflation. It's the cause of war. It's the cause of climate catastrophe. War and climate catastrophe are the two biggest drivers of inflation, and the people in charge lack the vocabulary to admit or understand that. Supply chain issues, supply chain, these are choke points that make it impossible for food, clothing, cars, steel, chips, lumber to get produced and make it to market. Climate catastrophe is making it worse and the worse it gets, the worse our supply chain issues become and inflation goes up and up and up. Remember Hurricane, Hurricane Ian down in Florida? I think it happened like two weeks ago. That's old news. What do you think that does to the cost of oranges? Or a trip to Disneyland? Have you priced a trip to Disneyland? Why do you think Disneyland has gotten so expensive? Why, because they're paying the people who live in their cars so much? If you work for Disneyland, chances are you're living in your car in Orlando. You think that's what's causing the ticket prices to go up at Disneyland, what they pay their workers? It's climate change. China is the largest producer of solar panels, but extreme heat is forcing their factories to shut down because of unsafe working conditions. And Chinese workers have to ration power in the factories due to water shortages, climate change-related water shortages, that make it impossible to power China's hydroelectric dams. So the price of solar panels goes up. Drought in Europe caused by man-made climate catastrophe. Drought in Europe means food prices are going up. Drought in Europe means energy prices are going up because there isn't enough water to produce hydroelectric power. And the water in France now is too hot to cool off the nuclear reactors. So the price of 
energy from nuclear reactors is going up. Massive drought throughout Europe and the American West is destroying our crops, and that drives up the cost of food. The people who work the fields now, and yes, I know it's hard for Americans to believe, but they are people, and they suffer from heat stroke. Vegetables are left to rot here in America because it's too dangerous to pick them. Cattle are dying because there's no water to feed them. And that is all because of climate catastrophe. It is all because of the oil companies. Massive flooding destroying factories in Pakistan this year are creating shortages of stuff that they make in Pakistan for us here in America. And when there's a shortage of stuff, the price of stuff goes up. This isn't really a supply chain issue. This is scarcity caused by climate catastrophe. Wake up, people. Wake up. Wake up. This inflation, this inflation is, this is the scarcity they warned us about when they said things are going to get bad because of climate catastrophe. Jerome Powell, nobody on Wall Street will admit this because they can't, but the single biggest driver of inflation is climate catastrophe. And if you don't know that, you're the problem. You're the problem for not knowing that. Everything costs more because there's less of it. This is the scarcity they told us about. This is what happens with climate catastrophe, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And we're going to fight wars over water. But because we're so effing stupid, nobody will say that this war is about climate catastrophe, right? We will fight wars because the mighty Colorado is drying up and northern Mexico needs the mighty Colorado. And we will accuse them of stealing water somehow from the mighty Colorado. Or California will take arms against Arizona fighting over the mighty Colorado. And we will fight and we will kill each other over water because that's what we can control. We can control the killing of one another. We can't control the oil companies who caused all of this but we can control killing one another. This is what is going to happen. This is what is going to happen because of people like Jerome Powell who won't talk about climate catastrophe. But still, we listen to Jerome Powell. We hang on every wet drip of effluvium that Jerome Powell lets rip from his putrid sphincter of a mouth. He's meeting right now with the other clown car of Federal Reserve bankers to decide how much they should raise interest rates uh, because the economy is running too hot. No, you delusional prick. 
It's the planet, not the economy. It's the planet that's running too hot. If Jerome Powell were any dumber, he'd be running for the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve bankers and the bankers they answer to, like Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, who says divesting his investment portfolio of fossil fuels is, quote, the highway to hell. They are pieces of shit, and they are murderous pieces of shit. Murderous pieces of shit. They are getting us killed. Sarah Bloom Raskin was appointed by Joe Biden to become a vice chair of the Federal Reserve this year. She's a good person. She's married to Jamie Raskin. She's not just a good person. She's a great person. We should be listening to her. Uh, She was going to sit on the Federal Reserve this year, but she had to withdraw her nomination due to pressure from the oil companies and their handmaiden, Senator Joe Manchin, who is the single largest recipient of fossil fuel money. So why couldn't Ms. Raskin sit on the Federal Reserve? Because during hearings this year before Congress, Sarah Raskin said that the Federal Reserve must police climate change. She made the mistake of saying that for the sake of financial stability, the banks must draw a direct connection between climate change and economic instability. And that was deemed unacceptable. No, no, there, there must not be a direct correlation made between climate catastrophe and inflation. We can't have this talk, said Joe Manchin. Senator Joe Manchin insisted that Biden withdraw Sarah Bloom Raskin's name, and she gave up. And what does this piece of shit Joe Manchin think is the single biggest driver of inflation? Well, he doesn't think it, but he says it. He says it's government spending. That's what he says is the biggest single driver of inflation. Yes, food stamps, a social safety net, That's what's causing inflation. That's what's causing all these supply chain issues. That's why we're paying so much for lumber and chips and food. Because food stamps, that's what's causing inflation. You effing piece of shit. The social safety net has nothing to do with inflation. It's war. That's what causes inflation, you idiot. It's rent. And most importantly, it's the supply chain issues caused by oil and gas. But, you know, they'll blame food stamps. They blame the earned income tax credit for children. Children getting $300, $600 a month. That's what's causing the inflation, you fucking pieces of shit. You fucking pieces of shit. You murderous fucking pieces of shit. They blame the unions. They say we can't increase the minimum wage all because of inflation. It's horseshit. Inflation is caused by war, rent, and most importantly, climate change. 
That's it. Jerome Powell, Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, is raising interest rates for the sole purpose of lowering wages. That's it. Because they don't want Americans comfortable. Because if Americans get comfortable, we have time to read, we have time to think, and we have time to realize what they're telling us about inflation and its relation to the social safety net is pure, unadulterated, murderous horse shit. Murderous horse shit. Inflation, and I'll keep repeating it, is caused by three things, rent, war, and most importantly, climate catastrophe. We could bring down the cost of living if we ended the wars, had rent freezes, and outlawed the oil companies. But this government can't tame the military-industrial complex, the fossil fuel industry, or the people who own real estate because this government is the military-industrial complex, the fossil fuel industry, and the people who own real estate. So when inflation, when we see inflation, we have to blame the single mom who won't get a job. The minimum wage in America is a little above $7.25 an hour. Nearly half the states in America have the federal minimum wage. They don't go above it. $7.25 an hour. You work a 40-hour week, that's $290 a week. Right? A single mom works, gets the minimum wage in half the states in this country, that's $290 a week. And if you apply for food stamps, SNAP, SNAP currently gives you $4 a day because Joe Biden raised it to $4 a day. Can Jerome Powell live on $4 a day for food? Yeah, if he switched to a plant-based diet. But this government, they make it impossible to switch to a plant-based diet. They want you eating dairy, cows, and chicken. Even though the UN says 14% of greenhouse gases are caused by man's consumption of livestock. We burn the rainforests to make room for cattle. Not only that, we burn the rainforests to make room for soybeans to feed to the cattle and then feed the cattle that ate the soybeans to ourselves. Very efficient. Makes absolutely no sense. Of course it makes no sense. Macron is the president of France. Sometimes I think the French kind of get it. French President Emmanuel Macron in August said his country was at a tipping point. This is what Macron said in August. He said his country was at a tipping point due to climate change and the war in Ukraine. Wow. He said, this is the president of France. He said, France must come to terms with the brutal reality that we have come to an end of, quote, the age of abundance. He called for something called shared sacrifice. You know, my parents and grandparents, 
spoke of shared, I don't know what that means, shared sacrifice. I have no idea what that means. But here is what Macron said in August. He said, what we are currently living through is a kind of major tipping point or a great upheaval. We are living the end of what could have seemed an era of abundance, the era the end of the abundance of products, of technologies that seemed always available, the end of the abundance of land and materials, including water. He went on to say, this overview that I'm giving, the end of abundance, the end of insouciance. Wow. Imagine a president saying insouciance. The end of assumptions it's ultimately a tipping point they were going through that can lead our citizens to feel a lot of anxiety. Faced with this, we have a duty, duties, the first of which is to speak frankly and clearly without doom-mongering. That would be the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, this summer. You know, America had a president who talked that way to the American people. His name was Jimmy Carter. And it's a miracle he made it out of the White House alive. Ronald Reagan replaced him, told us what we wanted to hear. And that's why 40 years later, it's over. It's over. Meanwhile, in France, oil refinery workers for Exxon and Total have been striking for higher wages since September 27th. Half of France's oil refineries, because of that, have been shut down. Workers inside several nuclear power plants in France have also gone on strike. The French government has ordered these strikers back to work. They're saying go back to work or face six months jail time. So in response to the shutdown of the refineries this month, France is now purchasing 40 percent of its diesel fuel from Russia. Right. So they're you know, they're dealing, they're dealing with it. On Sunday, 100,000 workers took to the streets of Paris to protest inflation, climate change, and the government's treatment of refinery workers. It's all connected, right? Inflation is caused by climate change, but the oil companies will blame the rising fuel costs on labor. The real solution to rising fuel costs Keep it in the ground. A general strike is expected for Tuesday in France, which will see rail workers, teachers, civil servants, healthcare workers, and supermarket employees walk off their jobs in solidarity with the refinery workers. Meanwhile, over there in Great Britain, uh, they have a new prime minister. And her name is Liz Truss, and she is, believe it or not, she is worse on climate change than Boris Johnson, if you can imagine that. In her first couple of weeks in office, she told King Charles he couldn't attend the UN climate conference in Egypt next month. Then she lifted the nation's ban on fracking and granted 130 new licenses for oil and gas drilling in the North Sea. She's also come out against more solar panels, saying solar panels should not be taking up valuable farmland. 
She wants more livestock and fewer solar panels. I guess that's out of professional courtesy. She wants, I don't know, she wants to show solidarity with other farting cows like herself. So what do you do? What do you do when you have leaders like Liz Truss? Well, you do this. Milk pours. Several members of Animal Rebellion in Scotland over the weekend staged a milk pour by seizing several gallons of milk in a supermarket and pouring it on the floor, encouraging more milk pours throughout the world uh, and to encourage people to switch to a plant-based diet, said one protester. I don't know. She looks like she's 18. She says, we tried democracy and it just didn't work. We tried democracy and it just didn't work. What do you do? What do you do if your government is run by murderous grifters like Liz Truss? Murderous grifters who won't just ignore climate catastrophe, but they make it worse. Britain's conservative government earlier this year passed new laws. We talked about this. They passed new laws making it easier for the police to arrest protesters. But that is not preventing Just Stop Oil activists in Great Britain who are now entering their seventh, 17th day of protests in England. 28 Just Stop Oil activists were arrested in London on Friday. An additional 26 were arrested on Saturday after they blocked traffic in East London by gluing their bodies to the street. Two Just Stop Oil activists were arrested on Friday inside London's National Gallery after they hurled a cup of tomato soup at Vincent van Gogh's painting of sunflowers. That painting, worth close to $90 million, luckily was covered in protective glass, which was removed and then with the tomato soup splayed all over it, sold at auction for three million pounds. You could, they sold the glass with the tomato soup on it for three million pounds. Two, uh, the two activists threw the can of tomato soup and then glued themselves to the wall. Watch, listen, and learn. Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? The cost of living crisis is part of the cost of oil crisis. Fuel is unaffordable to millions of cold, hungry families. They can't even afford to heat a tin of soup. Crops are failing. Millions of people are dying in monsoons, wildfires, and severe drought. We cannot afford new oil and gas. It is going to take everything we know and love. I I believe the term for them would be heroes. I think that's what you you call them, right? Those uh, just say uh, no to oil and oil paintings. Uh, 
they are right. And on Monday, the two women, barely 20, pleaded not guilty and were released on bail. In England, the Home Secretary is in charge of uh, security. That's what the Home Secretary is, you know, uh, keeping people safe. That's what the Home Secretary is. Her name is uh, Suella Braverman. She's the Home Secretary. And she said today that there is no greater threat to the security of her nation. This is in response to the ongoing protests. She, the head of uh, Home the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, said today that there is no greater threat to the security of England than that posed by the increasing grip the oil companies have on her country's conservative leadership. The Home Secretary gave British Petroleum and Exxon exactly five years to shut down all operations in the North Sea or face asset forfeiture and life imprisonment for their senior management. Then the Home Secretary lifted her skirt, pulled a salami from her cheeks, and proceeded to dip that salami in George Ezra's bong water and feed it to a squirrel. I'm sorry, I mispronounced that entire paragraph. She did, Secretary Braverman did what any conservative Home Secretary bought and paid for by the oil companies would do, She blamed the protesters. The protesters are worse than the oil companies. Uh, She called them guerrillas. Today, Home Secretary Braverman said, if these protesters think they're above the law, they're sorely mistaken. You have to destroy the planet to be above the law in Great Britain. The bad people in all this are the peaceful protesters. Home Secretary Braverman, who works part-time as a detachable nozzle, injecting vinegar and water during vaginal and or anal lavages, said today, we have given our police greater powers to tackle seriously disruptive protests through our police. She cited the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, but then added that it was watered down by the House of Lords. She wants a new bill that will give more power to the police so they can act proactively against climate catastrophe protesters. See, that's climate catastrophe just doesn't cause inflation and kill us. It destroys the thing that conservatives say they're so much in favor of. Freedom and liberty. It's almost as though conservatives are completely full of shit. I need got a little bottle of woolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, 
got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A fifth of tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender, I'm traveling light. Expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. He's got a cold. What are you doing? Get off my... Get out of there. Get out. What? Go away. There. Go away. Uh, thank you, Professor Mike Steinel, who won't be with us tonight. He's got some kind of flu. I don't think it's COVID. Well, 
the, I believe it's the 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress kicked off on Sunday. Chinese President Xi could end up becoming the most powerful ruler of China since Mao Zedong. Here to talk to us about this week-long conference is Grace Jackson, who works our China desk, and she is in Great Britain. How are you today? Boy, you know, um, before we talk about before we talk about China, uh, you know, I've heard Lane, people here, we have a lot of listeners in Great Britain who tell me how screwed up Great Britain is, and I didn't believe it. America's crazy, but your country's evil. <laughs> no offense. We're, we're right. insane. We're insane. But there's some evil stuff going on in Great Britain. I know. There's some very anti-democratic stuff going on in Great Britain as well. Yeah. Um, that's why I prefer to focus on China. Yes. <laughs> Where? So what happened? This is day two. Yeah. Well, the big news is that... Uh, the conference opened with a two-hour work report delivered by Xi Jinping himself. And actually, this was quite a short report by previous party Congress standards because, um, and I believe it's to do with the COVID control aspect of the situation. So they didn't actually want Xi to be stood speaking for as long as he would have done. There was actually a script that was circulated to all the delegates that would have taken about four and a half hours to deliver, but he only delivered a two-hour kind of abridged version, the highlights, if you will. What, 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 so, he's 69 years old. Is that for fear of his, of his catching COVID? I'm sure. I mean, he's, hmm. he's famously, like Vladimir Putin, and unlike Boris Johnson, he's famously kind of COVID shy and... Um, He's very cautious. So, and I think just generally speaking, if there were to be an outbreak, it would be pretty disastrous, uh, given that so much of the legitimacy of the party's rule has been kind of built and bolstered by its COVID response. And he mentioned that in the report. That was a that was one of the four great achievements that he named. Um, I think just zooming out. Uh, the big takeaways here were two words, struggle and security. So these are two concepts that appeared in the, in the report, which, by the way, was a kind of review of the past five years, but also looking ahead to the next five years. And these two terms, they cropped up with much greater frequency this time than they did in 2017 at the last party congress report. So if you're just looking at the kind of word cloud, these were very important terms. And by security, uh, we really mean national security in this context. And by national security, we mean regime security, or, or that's what he means. So it's the security, a the different concept. The security of the leadership, the security of yes. the institutions internally. Absolutely. Ideological security and institutional security. And it's one thing was very clear in this report. And this is to an extent something that we've 
we've seen expressed many times before uh, by sort of party speeches and documents, but that is the conflation of the party's priorities with those of the nation, the Chinese nation and the Chinese people. So these two concepts, these two entities are essentially fused. Um, and so for the party, for Xi, national security means fundamentally holding on to power, wielding that power. Um, and so it's a slightly different concept than the one that we have when we talk about national security. Uh, in terms of struggle, that was another very important concept. Um, it was, you know, it was it was fairly assertive. It's pretty clear that um, the Chinese leadership believe that America is hell bent on uh, keeping China down, on on suppressing China's rise, uh, especially given the huge amount of export controls that were applied last week to advanced semiconductor technology. So that was another context for this. Um, she also mentioned one of his favorite kind of uh, slogans that has he's been kind of talking about since 2016. And this is that the world is experiencing, quote, great changes unseen in a century. So this is um, something that he mentions pretty much in every speech. And it refers to kind of two kind of movements that he sees happening in the world right now. And one is the rise of, of China. Um, he talks about the East rising and the West declining. And the other, yeah, this is basically a kind of, that sort of a movement where, especially during the pandemic and after the Trump presidency, there's a real sense that the world is moving towards multipolarity, uh, with China being, you know, a, a big part of that. And yeah, so that was the basic kind of context of the speech. In terms of specifics, there wasn't actually that much that was new in the report. Um, the same message for Taiwan that the party will never renounce the use of force in order to solve that particular problem. Uh, and it warned foreign powers from interfering in what it calls the Taiwan question, um, which, you know, is basically saying to the US and to Joe Biden, stop uh, messing with the one China policy, I would say. Um, Another important concept was this idea of Chinese modernization, which people may have seen in some of the reporting. Uh, this, she said, uh, offers humanity a new choice, a new way of, of moving towards modernization. Um, and a particular Chinese form of modernization, which includes a, a large population, prosperity for all, a balance of material and cultural progress. So that's against the kind of perceived materialism of the West, harmony between man and nature and peaceful development. So it sounds very nice, mm -hmm. um, Chinese modernization. But really, this is kind of another part of uh, this idea of China kind of stepping onto the world stage, refuting the idea that really liberal democracy is the only ultimate end of history, that there is more than one way 
uh, to be a superpower. Um, and then there was, you know, normal kind of stuff on technological self-reliance, doubling down on the zero COVID policy, praising uh, China's response to COVID. And an interesting line on, on religion, uh, he didn't mention Xinjiang by name. Where the he, Muslims are. Where the Uyghur Muslims live, yep. But he did say that religions in China must be Chinese in orientation, which is interesting. Again, mm. not a new concept, but this idea that there is a, there is really a single kind of source of authority, and that source is the party. Um, and if your religion has some sort of overseas HQ, that's not going to fly. It needs to be rooted in in kind of Chinese soil. So it, not a huge amount of surprising content in this report, but just a lot of a lot of themes that were kind of cohering and being consolidated. Great. I, I, let's bring in Professor Ann Lee, see if she has anything she wants to mention. And while we're waiting for her to turn on her microphone, the, how uh, strict and adherent is she to Leninism and communist tradition? Are, is, we, we've been led to believe that China is a capitalist country. Everything changed under Deng Xiaoping, and now they've embraced. But they are, in some manifestation, a communist, a socialist economy, aren't they? Hybrid? Um, Anne, do you want to take that? <laughs> How would you define this <laughs> economy? We're still, the, the, the globe is still in the mode of production called capitalism. But uh, China is a socialist economy. It's a mixed economy in the sense that, you know, since Deng Xiaoping, um, markets are liberated in a variety of areas. Um, it has more, it's socialist in the sense that there are many state-owned enterprises. Uh, it is a control economy and uh, driven by a politics of a single party. Uh, and I would add as well, go ahead. Sorry, and I would add as well that in the past couple of years, we've seen this uh, slogan, common prosperity. This is something Xi Jinping has talked about quite a bit, but there has been very little substance and very little actual policy that is, you know, redistributing wealth, for example, in China. So there is a sense in which this is a very um, important talking point. And she mentioned in his report that they need to kind of control wealth accumulation. Um, they've already taken a, a very harsh line on kind of monopolistic practices the, by big Jack companies. Jack Ma, the head of Alabama. Jack Ma, exactly. But there isn't so far much substance to it. And they're outlawing, well, you, well, they're outlawing the star system. They do not want superstars in show business. They don't want fan magazines. They don't want gossip. They find that's uh, bad for kids and it's bad for society to, to worship false idols. There is something kind of, I mean, I kind of, I don't approve. Well, of these, are, these are complicated matters when you're trying to build socialism with Chinese characteristics. So I think the Chinese characteristics problem 
for example, there's a recent thing on uh, Xi elevating uh, Confucianism or mm. uh, appealing to some notions of Confucianism, which is actually very interesting. Uh, I, I, I just think there's not enough attention paid to exactly what that socialism with Chinese characteristics really is from a theoretical point of view, but Grace, you probably have better information on that. What was? And, go ahead, Grace. No, you you, you go ask what, what you want what, to Professor ask. Lee. What was your takeaway from so far two days into this conference? What did you? It it had largely the general notions that uh, uh, that were necessary. I think he did uh, include the the one of the mainstream media takes on it was that he wasn't excluding the notion of force relative to Taiwan. Uh, that was a, a something promoted on the Western reporting on this. Yeah, and it's always interesting that that is usually the headline in these reports, but actually that formulation, the way he said it, uh, is pretty much how he says it every time. It's not really new. Um, the part they've never really renounced the use of force in relation to the Taiwan issue. And so it, it is certainly what our media tends to care more about, but it's it's not like this was a a brand new idea. Before you go, what is Xi's strength? He's it looks like he's gonna get an unprecedented third term. Does he rule by Fiat and fear the way Stalin did. He, he must. He must have some. There must be oh, something very pers up, persuasive. Yeah, he's built up a huge amount of legitimacy, and I think a lot of that is to do with his anti-corruption campaign. I didn't mention that, but that's another big part of the report. This campaign has been going on since he came to power for a decade now, and. Under the previous leader, Hu Jintao, corruption in the party was rife. It was, a, it was a real problem. And by all accounts, Xi Jinping has truly clamped down. I mean, his critics would say that he's also used that campaign to kind of crush any sign of, of factionalism, any kind of opposition to him. And that may well be the case, but it is also the case that he has quite effectively brought the party under his control and disciplined the party. And so I, I do think he has he has quite a bit of legitimacy in, in the eyes of, of many Chinese people. I'm not saying there's no opposition to him. And certainly, you know, every every action has an equal reaction. And so I think that he's probably made a lot of enemies, but those enemies are going to keep their mouths shut if they exist at all. And what should we expect for the rest of the week? We are going to find out the new lineup for the Politburo Standing Committee, which is the seven-person group that makes the biggest decisions in China. There is very little chance that we will get any sense of who might succeed Xi in either five or ten, potentially ten years, probably ten years. Does it come from that? Usually, come from that committee. Yes. So we would expect based on the norms, previously established norms under Deng Xiaoping, we would expect one of the seven who's going to walk out onto the stage to be his successor. But it really depends on 
their age and their seniority. So we don't want them to be too old. We don't want them to be too young. If they're too old, they'll have to retire before they're eligible. If they're too young, they're just not going to make it. So it's it's a very kind of subtle thing, actually. Um, and it's unclear whether there will even be one, because if there is even a hint of a successor, that makes him potentially a lame duck. And that's a problem. Human nature. Human nature mm. never changes. Grace Jackson works our China desk. I love saying that. It's just, <laughs> she, and you, what, what dialect do you speak? Oh, Mandarin. And, and he delivers his speech in what? Mandarin. I see. Okay. Yeah. He, he, I love listening to him, him in Mandarin, actually. It's fun. Because a lot of the phrases are just, they're so kind of, they have this feeling behind them. It's very enjoyable. Wow. You're, I, uh, I speak Sicilian, <laughs> Chicago deep dish, and uh, plain. I, I don't speak. I can, I can, as you know, I can barely speak English. Grace Jackson is late <laughs> in Great Britain. Follow Grace on Twitter. Come back Thursday. Please. Okay. Please. This is important. Uh, follow Grace on Twitter at Grace Jackson. And she is the co-host of Literary Hangover. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's go to Professor Ann Lee. Thank you for being here, Professor Ann Lee. You write over at the Daily Kos. Everybody should follow you on the Daily Kos under the handle Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. I touched at the beginning on what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, you do a nightly update. Uh, where are we tonight? Not a good day oh, in Ukraine, was it's, it? Uh, it's an interesting day for disinformation. There's a lot of disinformation. I wrote last night about uh, how there, you know, uh, th there's there are certain kinds of disinformation that are costless, and one example of that could be a story coming out of Belarus that uh, the Russians were modifying a particular type of plane. It's their ground attack plane, uh, the Su-25, to um, to handle nuclear tip, nuclear warheads, uh, uh, nuclear weapons, and uh, it's a you know it, it. They didn't have to mention it. They they're just promoting it as a kind of threat, which is a really empty one. Uh, but it it uh, got picked up and un unfortunately amplified. But it, it raises an interesting question and one that the Belarusians should be concerned about uh, as to if the nuclear if nuclear weapons are added to Russian airplanes and they come out of Bel well they're Belarusian jets. So if they attack Ukraine, is it should Ukraine be attacking Belarus or Russia? Uh, you know, it, it just this whole widening uh, and the whole issue of Lukashenko being um, engaged in this is going to be an interesting problem. So, so Belarus, Army, Belarus is on Russia's side and it's become a staging ground for some some attacks on Ukraine. Well, Putin is propping up uh, Lukashenko, as we saw in the earlier uh, 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 controversy, let's put it that way, conflicts over a, 
<laughs> rigged election for Lukashenko. So the, there's clear Russian influence there, but it has a very small army. So it's not really, you know, it's really propped up by a Russian army as well. And so movement of troops and equipment has been happening. I think a lot of it is simply that uh, they're refitting uh, Russian armament and they're also taking some of the Belarusian uh, supplies, tanks, etc., to because they're running out of things. Uh, similarly, uh, the the issue of today, there were uh, the the problem is that the Western press makes it m- seem much larger than it is. It it was an attack certainly, and you know you you have to sort of take it with uh, a certain measure of skepticism. Not, not that people didn't die. Uh, uh, Eleven people died, uh, I think, or. Um, uh, People died today in what uh, the West calls, Western reporting calls, uh, waves of Iranian drones. Now, the point is, of course, that uh, Russia is using cheaper, $10,000 to $20,000, very slow, relatively primitive uh, 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 Iranian drones to deliver essentially terror attacks. They've, uh, These are the kamikaze only- drones. Yeah. And in fact, even the phrasing of it as a quote unquote suicide or kamikaze drone has this own, you know, kind of framing on it. Uh, the issue is that they are loitering uh, munitions that are relatively slow and um, uh, uh, fairly small. And I found it interesting simply because it, it, it has all these different little fractures, media fractures to it. So, for example, there is an app that you can get if you're a Ukrainian that will allow you to participate in the defense against such drones. You can actually download an app to your Android uh, smartphone. Uh, and once you test it, you can aim it at an incoming drone or cruise missile, and you'll participate in the larger sort of radar tracking or the GPS tracking of whatever's coming in. It's, it's actually kind of interesting. Uh, and now the issue, of course, is to try and, and continue cultural solidarity among the, you know, among the people, because uh, it is pretty frightening to have these things come in. And, and they're now being referred to as mopeds because their uh, their motors are so primitive that it sounds like a lawnmower is coming in very much like the V1 uh, buzz bombs of World War Two. Uh, it, it's just interesting. They're harder to shoot down because they are in some ways so slow. And as uh, I was talking about earlier, they, um, um, the uh, the Ukrainians lost a couple of jet planes trying to knock down these fairly slow-moving drones, which is not a good allocation of resources, considering that, um, you know, an Iskander uh, uh, missile is about a million dollars for the Russians, whereas these things, and I don't know what the markup is from uh, Iran, but uh, you know, ten to twenty thousand bucks is a lot cheaper to terrorize uh, civilians. So that's sort of what's happening. How does the app work? So you you can locate it, and then it helps you zero in on I, it. To yeah, shoot essentially, you you sort of aim it at whatever you see in the sky that's moving across, and so using your geolocation, it'll triangulate with a bunch of other folks who are putting activating their systems. And it'll give a better, you know, statistically speaking, a big data kind of thing, uh, a better positioning for identifying where the drones are. There's a lot of other anti-drone technology that's probably being used that we're not, no one's talking about at the present moment. And they've managed to knock down a bunch of them. But the fact is, these things are 
you know, um, unfortunately effective in, in terms of they it brought down three floors of an apartment building in Kiev, I think, today. Um, you know, and, and the reporting gets kind of weird after that. You know, a, 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 a family died. The the um, one of the members woman. of the a woman. She was the top sommelier in Kiev, which is I don't know. It's just the strangest details. Um, but you know, these are this is the level of reporting you get. A kind of wide range of kind of cultural detail, but a whole bunch of other awful things going on at the same time. Uh, for example, uh, just in the last hour or so, the I think the mobilization uh, commander. For, and this is not clear whether it's the uh, Kaminsky uh, region, which is in the far east of Russia, or it's the Kaminsky uh, district of Petersburg, of St. Petersburg. Uh, anyway, the guy was dead, and they can't figure out whether it's a suicide or not. And um, if it's if it's the far east one, and this is just early reporting, so we actually don't know a lot about it. But if it's the Far East one, they were short on their mobilization targets by 50 percent. So something's going on there. On the other hand, it could be, you know, a whole bunch of other possibilities. But anyway, they reported uh, several news agencies just reported that death. And there was an act of terrorism uh, to uh, residents from a, a Tajikistan. Tajikistan shot up a, a Russian training facility. Uh, yeah, they were, I think, uh, recruits. And, uh, you know, if they were conscripted like some people, the reporting is claimed, you know, they're just nabbing people and dragging them in. I mean, it, it's clear that a couple of folks were not happy with could be not happy with that. And uh, uh, so you would have some uh, friendly fire incidents like this. And a lot of people died. It's a very horrible thing in, in, in that context. Before you go, we're getting reports of hundreds of thousands of able-bodied Russian men running to other countries to escape the draft. Is there, I mean, I guess the reporting is spotty, but do we have any sense of this isn't working for Putin and people in his circle will maybe tell him it's time to go? Well, this is all the problem of so-called uh, Cold War Kremlin watching. So it, it is it has all of those problematic contours to right. who knows what's going on. The CIA probably has a good sense of it, but they're not going to tell us. So we don't know uh, if he's going to catch a cold or not. Uh, no, not yet. I, I okay. think, you know, I think there's been a lot of attention paid to who's next. But, you know, considering that he's now uh, appointed a new head of, uh, of the military, uh, an Air Force general. Uh, which does change it in some ways from the hierarchy of, of you know, how the, the, the Russian military is constructed. So there's there's a variety of those problems, as well as uh, some things that are much more, you know, as it were mundane, a report on uh, um, how the Russians are laundering um, essentially grain shipments. They're reclassifying and a variety of other things. So there's there are a lot of strange issues. And then, as I mentioned before, uh, on liquid natural gas, uh, you know, liquid natural gas is backing up uh, in terms of uh, uh, ships with liquid natural gas in Spain. Now, why that's important is because it's part of this whole issue of if you turn off or blow up whatever happens to uh, Nord Stream, that has an effect on the world uh, 
uh, or at least on the uh, eastern hemisphere uh, uh, liquid natural gas market. So th this is it, it. It becomes problematic when you consider that the prediction is that there is going to be quote unquote a mild winter, and uh, in the U.S. Uh, uh, futures for liquid natural gas are actually the price is going down. Uh, whereas uh, in Spain, for example, the there are 35 liquid natural gas uh, uh, ships vessels that are backed up. Uh, they can't unload. And and why does that have anything to do with Ukraine? Well, the fact is there and and it's uh, it needs a little more analysis of where this this stuff is coming from. But if if some of it's coming from Russia, it's taking the long way around to get to Central Europe because some liquid natural gas gets piped uh, from Spain to Central Europe. It's a really very strange set of, of issues, but these are all global economic issues that go back to the age of imperialism, essentially. Professor Ann Lee writes over at the Daily Coes. Read her there every night, every day. She writes under the handle Annie Lee, at Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. -E Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Thank you. You're better than Google. That's, I, I read you in the <laughs> chat room. You're faster than Google. It's incredible. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. I'll see you Thursday, I hope. Well, yep. coming up, Royal Watcher Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling will be joining us. But first, we want to welcome back Dr. Nancy. She is a pediatric, uh, pediatric neurologist. Did I get that right? Yep. And, sure. and this is now your second. Well, you were on the show back in L.A. talking about Medicare for all. And but you're, you're back now and uh, it's good to see you. I want to talk about Medicare, Medicaid. And a lot of my listeners are all already on Medicare or already on Medicaid. Some of my listeners are going to be on Medicare in a couple of years. What are the pitfall, pitfalls that people who are about to go on Medicare should watch out for? Um, first of all, figuring out what it is. I've actually put together a little slideshow, if I can show it. Uh, yes. Hang on. So let me give you co-hosting abilities. Okay, you're now my co-host. And with that comes uh, permission to yell at Dan Frankenberger. <laughs> I've never, Dan, I'm joking. I love Dan. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how I get to my, my uh, slides. You, you go to share screen. Yeah. And there you go. Okay. Now you're in a launch meeting. Uh, yeah, my slides are over here. Oh, dear. Uh, okay, so the way you do it, it's very simple. Get, get out of share screen. By the way, you know, Rusty Schweikert was on the show last week, and he was doing this, and he was an Apollo 9 astronaut. Oh, my gosh. And he... he, he trained the LEM for everybody, taught people how to fly the LEM, and he was trying to share a screen, and I got to say to him, don't panic. 
Well, I just lost Dr. Nancy. <laughs> we just... Did we lose you? Okay, she'll be back. We have technical problems on this show. That's uh, the way things are here. Coming up, uh, maybe sooner than later, is Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. He comes to... There's Dr. Nancy. All right, you're back. Okay. <laughs> All right, so go to share screen, click on share screen. Yes. And then you'll see various applications to choose from. And the one you want to choose... Would you disable the my sharing? No. Oh, I have to make you a co-host again. Okay, so you now go to share screen, and you'll see some windows. Yes. What do you see? I see you in part of my own screen, yes. You see applications? You know, maybe I better just, we better just talk. No, I don't. Okay. I thought this would be easy. All right. People, we don't need, we, we'll talk. Uh, okay. People love watching boomers struggle with technology. <laughs> I, I, I actually, there's a fetish on YouTube of boomers unable to work software. And it's... I didn't see any way to pull up my, you know, my documents. or. Don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry okay. about it. Okay, anyway... So Medicare, think, Medicare, most people don't know what, you're right, most people don't know what Medicare is. We hear Medicare for all as though that will solve all our problems, and it will, the same way Medicare solved all our problems. It's got its problems, but it's better than the alternative. So what, what is Medicare? Medicare is a, a system, I think it was started by um, um, President Johnson, and um, it's health care for everyone, every American who reaches 65 years old. What you don't know when you get there is, I, I thought it would be, a, you know, like getting a driver's license. Sign up and you got it. And there's much more much more to do than that. Many decisions to make. The first thing is do not get Medicare Advantage. That is, well, let me explain that. That was going to be the point. Medicare is A, B, C, D, and G. They're those parts. And part A is what everyone, even if you have insurance, at 65, you should sign up for Part A. If you get in a hospital, it pays all the bills. It's 100% free hospital care. Part B is what pays for your doctor and a routine health care. And that you have a choice with. You can buy Part B, Actually, you have to buy Part B. But 
the controversy is part C, and that is advantage. There's argument it shouldn't be called Medicare Advantage because what you actually do is buy it from an insurance company and they cover part B, which is doctor visits, part D, which is drugs, and the donut hole, which doesn't really exist there. The problem with, uh, let me do tell you what you do. You can do otherwise, then we'll get back to advantage. What I've done, because I'm not going to do advantage, is from an insurance company, yes, you buy Part B, and it might be a little more expensive, but they cannot say no to you. And it's only 80% that you get. And that's why you have to buy another um, policy, which is actually Part G, Medigap, which pays the donut hole. And Medigap is good. But nobody offers it to you up front. When you talk about going on Medicare, what I learned, all my friends are talking about, oh, it's so great. You'll love it. They all have advantage. And once and, you once you get on advantage, you can't switch. You're stuck in advantage, correct? You, you can actually switch anywhere from October 15th to December 7th in a year. You can change. You can. But changing, you run the risk that prices go up and they play around. Here's what we need to do. Uh, we We need to do a half hour on Medicare. Uh, I do a radio show with Ralph Nader, and he talks about this all the time. We've had guests on the show who tell us what the pitfalls are. They make it purposely confusing. The the right wing wants to destroy Medicare. They want to turn it over to the insurance companies. They're, they slowly are turning it over to the insurance companies. Let's schedule a, a half hour with your slides. It's dry, but it's important because... It's not dry. I have lots of cartoons and graphs. It's really very interesting. Okay. I promise you. But I want to make something clear here, at least to get people thinking. The government pays for Part A, Part B, 80% of Part B, and, and you have to get a policy to cover the rest of Part B and your drugs, okay? The Advantage plans are what is advertised everywhere. What's the difference? You're also buying a monthly policy, at, but they take all the money from the government. So they're getting a check from you every month and a check from the government every month to do make more paperwork because they won't give you medical care Unless you um, get it, you get um, uh, permission for it. So you have to go through all this paperwork for pre-authorization if you want to go to a special doctor that's not on their list. So it's an HMO. Yeah. And I will say that my friends who have had Kaiser for a long time, 
they're doing pretty well on on the um, Medicare Kaiser. Um, and so I can't say too many bad things about that. But overall, if we're ever going to get to more of a single payer, one very good way to protest is to not buy Medicare Advantage. Ralph Nader calls it Medicare disadvantage. Right. And he's been calling it that for years. Let's do this. Let's talk tomorrow and schedule a full half hour. We'll do it later in the show, like in the 10 o'clock hour, and we'll do a half hour. And to my listeners, if you're young, you need to know what Medicare is so you can help your grandparents and your parents. This is America. Everybody is scamming you, and you can either curl up in a ball and surrender or fight these MFers. We'll give you the tools to understand what Medicare is and how you can advocate for the, the aging boomers who left you with a planet that only has five years left. You should return the favor to your grandparents and your parents who left you nothing by helping them with their Medicare. Or if you're about to go on Medicare, you need to learn this. And if you're on Medicare, uh, you need to come and listen to Dr. Nancy, who is a brilliant pediatric neurologist. You'll come back. Let's talk tomorrow and set this up. This was great. Okay, I'd love to do it. And then we'll talk about Will Ryan. It, it, but I, when I start talking about Will, I get, I get upset. So, we'll, we'll, well, he wouldn't have wanted you to do that. Yeah. He wants people to be happy. Uh, thank you. We'll talk tomorrow. Okay. And we'll, and we'll, thank you. Thank you. That's Dr. Nancy. Hopefully... She'll be coming back all the time. I like the six o'clock hour with quick reports and wrapping up the six o'clock hour. There's nobody I want to talk to after all this. Who do I want to talk to? It would be <laughs> Sir Arthur Griebstreet. He is a, a royal watcher, not just a royal watcher. He comes to us from uh, Remington Hall in East Anglia, where he is a neighbor of King Charles. Welcome, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Good evening, David. Am, am I audible? I, I believe so. Yes, you are. You can hear me fine. That's that's fantastic. I'm not all I'm not altogether good with this newfangled modern technology stuff, sir. I need to make sure my my uh, nephew Quentin is trying to teach me how to do things on the internet seems to be bringing up only things such as pornography you, I think he's got a, you've had several nephews named Quentin they all seem yes, to be they uh, all seem to be the same they it, they one I, I remember meeting one of your nephews named Quentin who was uh, 25 mm. he was Asian yes. and then yes. a, a, like five years later your nephew Quentin also 25 yes. Right, yes, yes. from Ghana, and they, they live yes, yes. at Remington Manor. Yes, uh, yes. They, um, they many, perform 
They perform a function. Okay. So Certain functions. Right. Your, 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 I guess you, your sister had a lot of children and named them all Quentin. Uh, well, uh, as great an internationalist as she is, um, that isn't the, uh, that is not the reason. Uh, I tend to find uh, these people rather cheap online. They fulfill a certain function, David, yes. Your nephews. Uh, well, for legal purposes, they're, they're one nephew, yes, just one person. Because I've Call seen... Quentin. I've seen pictures of you with your nephew at, at Buckingham Palace. Uh, mm. I think you were there for the, the, the dinner honoring Angela Merkel. And you brought, mm. your, you brought your nephew, Quentin, to, to that. Yes. Yeah. How are was, th- this, uh, nef- was this Quentin number four? I, I don't know. I, I, I forget. Angela Merkel's in the middle. That may be... A, that may have been Quentin number four. I've been online the, the last six months hunting for a Quentin from the Ukraine. I would have thought, given the situation. So this is there, like an ancestry. Yeah. This is ancestry.com. You're, you're trying to find relatives through your DNA. Is that, it's like a DNA match. Is that how it works? You find a nephew you, you get you send if you like David. Yes, if you like. If yes, yes. In fact, yes, I'll go with that. Yes. That's exactly what it is, yes. And, and so you're finding nephews now in Ukraine? Yes, yes. It's, it's astonishing. The, the nephews I find tend to be in areas of uh, sheer destitution mm. and uh, people who really need to get out of those areas. Oh, One can call me a humanist. I see. So you bring your new nephew, newfound nephew, back to Remington yes. Hall. In Rim, East, Rimington Hall, yes. Rimington Hall in East Anglia. Thank you. And, uh, yeah. and do you introduce them to your mother? I, yes, I do, yes. And does she... Um, there's a, within the email exchange, there is a disclaimer that uh, should they enter my premises and... Uh, Disclose the fact that my mother is stuffed and dead and stuck in a rocking chair uh, in various types of uh, disguise. Um, they're not to expose this to the media or the press or anything like that. So they're fully aware of my mother's um, um, condition. She, she has a condition. Yes. It is a condition. It's, it's death. She's dead, yes. Yeah, and that's very sad. It's, it's very sad when we see our parents age and they're stuffed in a rocking chair. They can no longer clothe themselves. It happens to us all, David, does it not? Well, yeah, but it's sad. And so from what I understand, you bathe now. You have to bathe and feed your dead mother. Is that correct? Yes, it's rather difficult because she's constantly in a sitting position. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like trying to bathe uh, the the little man inside of an Airfix model kit. It's, uh, right, it's, it's, in the cockpit. What do you tend to do? I, I, I tend to stick a rod up her ass, stick her in the barn, and just spray her with a, with a hose. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. It's sad when they get to that point. 
when they can no longer death, death, rigidity, and right. uh, a lot of creosote. Yes, you hate to see them that way, right? Not necessarily, David. I've, if it were the case that I hated this, it wouldn't be happening, my friend. Oh, you're you're an inspiration. I very much enjoy this. See, you're so selfless, Sir Arthur Greeb Strebling, yes. to do Correct, that for yeah. your mother. What is yes. she now? It's autumn in East Anglia. What? Yes. What did you dress Mummy in today? Uh, well, today she's uh, butt naked. Yesterday, however. Uh, she was dressed as a scarecrow for some reason. No, I didn't do it. Which is, that's the most startling thing. I, it may have been the butler. I'm not sure. But so I did not touch her yesterday. I came down. I had a lot of a voluminous poo. I came down from the bathroom to find my mother ensconced in the chair, dressed as a scarecrow. Not a pretty scarecrow like on Wizard of Oz. An actual scary scarecrow. It, actually, it scared me and I'm not even a crow. Right, right. Yes. Well, I hope she's... And now you said she's butt naked? She's complete... Well, yeah, well, one can't see her butt, and uh, that's... Because it's she's up, seated. Clearly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she's seated, but uh, and if, our, she, if her butt were visible, she would be considered butt naked, yes, yes. And you sit and watch Jeopardy with her, right? I don't know what Jeopardy is, uh, given I live in the United Kingdom, David. Oh, I, I thought I, somewhere I read that you and your mother at, at seven o'clock every night, you sit and watch Jeopardy. No, I don't know what Jeopardy the, is. The David. game show, the game show Jeopardy. I don't know. That has not translated to the the uh, the motherland that is the United Kingdom. And you don't have a television. Well, I do have a television. I don't know how to turn it on. Ah, and that's where yes. the, so that's where Quentin, your nephew, comes in. Comes as a figurative word, but yes, it's where yes, where he enters. Yes, he enters the. Uh, he, he's there to. Turn. He's a technological. Technological. I can't even say it. He's a technological. I'll try and say it again. He's a technological guy. There you go. I said it. Liz Truss. You're, oh dear. you're prime minister. Yes, yes. Not going well, or is that misinformation? Here in America, we're being told that she doesn't have much longer. Is that true? Yeah, she's, a, she's probably about four months away from death. Or at least that's how she looks. So right. she, you're right, she hasn't got much longer. I, I don't think I would be happy stuffing Liz Truss, however. I don't think she's been I don't think she's been stuffed for a couple of years. She's a good person, though. She has a big heart and she's trying to help people, as I understand it, that she wants to give people like you uh, tax cuts. And she's yes. going into debt. I mean, that's big hearted of her to to want to go into debt to so people like even, you. Even, th even though she's doing it for the most craven of reasons, you're right, it is a. That's exactly what the country requires. There's, not, there's nothing more loyal to the country than a hungry populace. They'll do anything you bloody well want. So give us the money. Let these uh, peasants work for it and indeed be hunted for it. And uh, yes, we'll be, we'll be fine. The country, this country relies on the subjugation of its people, yes. Yes. Hunting peasant 
season starts. Yes. And and you will be hunting peasants starting yes. in two yes. weeks. Yes. Two weeks from now is when yes. peasant hunting season starts. That, that's right, David. Yes, yes. And do you think King Charles, he used to join you at Remington. Will he join you? I, I don't think it's what one does when, when one reaches the pinnacle of his chosen career. Chosen not by himself, obviously. Um, yes, yeah, so I, don't, I don't think Charles will be there. No, I don't. And how He'll do be you, too busy, I don't know. We're going into, I believe, his second month as king. How do you measure him? Uh, with a rule, like anybody else. <laughs> I've tried, I tried once with a tape measure. <laughs> Um, but just basically, if you imagine uh, the way a anaconda sizes up its prey before it eats it, I've been trying in my hardest way to size up Prince Charles for a good good five years uh, for the, the the inevitable time when it comes to stuff the man. I need to know how much to fill him with, basically. Right. And then stuff him. The queen consort. Yes, you 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 dated Princess Anne, and you left yes. her. You left her for Camilla. What yes, yes. what was Camilla like? Um, in in what way, David? Well, you were. I, I think you were intimate with Camilla, uh, as one could be with a solid block of ice. Yes. And what was that like? What is she She's like? Stony cold, stony cold lady, with a face like a horse. Ah, love. Sounds yes. like you still, you're still carrying a torch for her. There is an element of, uh, well, not an element, a severe amount of jealousy at the moment. Yes, I yeah. against me and old Chuck. I, I still have something for the old dotty bat. Yes. Mm. Well, it's yes. hard to compete with King Madge, as you call him. Yes, his Madge. His Madge. His, I don't know his what... His Madge, our Madge, your Madge. Everybody's Madge, yes. I don't know what kind of role-playing games you play where he ends up with the nickname Madge. <laughs> his Majesty, I think you'll find... You colonialists are not very good with abbreviations, are you, David? Oh, I thought... Okay, yeah. I see. Yes, it's, no, it's, there's nothing untowards with the abbreviation of majesty. Well, match, nothing we've it's, been it's talking. Nothing we've been talking with Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling, who lives in East Anglia. He's been talking. And you to, kicked me off. Well, we have to get to Howie Klein. You interminable swine, you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. So much. You're listening to the Dave. That is Sir Arthur Greep Streebling coming to us from London. And uh, hopefully I'm going to be able to get Howie Klein on the line. Oh, please tell me you're there, Howie. Howie. OK, we're having technical problems today. Uh, this is how it's going to be. Oh, screw um, let me try again. All right. Sir Arthur, are you there? While I try to figure out. Oh, so you want me now, David? Well, I need, I don't want you. I need you. 
Don't leave me. Oh, 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 fair enough, yes. Yes, I'm still here, David. Uh, what seems to be the problem? I'm having trouble connecting with Howie Klein. Uh, if you wish, I've got a certain website you could use and you could order your own Quentin. Hang on. Uh, let me play a song. Howie, are you there? Oh, what is going David, you need your own Quentin. Hmm. All right. Let me try this one more time. At a good price as well, by the way. Why do these problems happen to me? Everybody else can do a show with no technical... Howie, are you there? Howie, are you there? Howie. Howie, are you there? Howie. I am here, uh, and I was here on the last. Yeah, David. I'm, I'm definitely here, Okay, I'm having technical problems. Let me try one thing. Uh, okay. Well, I think it's fixed now. Well, actually, it isn't. Let me just try one quick thing. I think right. I. I think I know it. Um, Howie. Say something now, please. Something now, please. Please. Oh, <laughs> damn it. All right. Um, why is this? Hello? Yes. All right. Uh, damn it. I don't know what's going on, Howie. Are you there? I am. Okay. Uh, we're going to have to do this uh, the old-fashioned way. I'm putting, Which way is that? I I'm putting the phone to the, the microphone. So <laughs> this is okay. I bought a new mixer and it's it's killing me. Uh, Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, and he writes over at Down with Tyranny. Herschel Walker. Not bad. Did you watch the debates? I watched clips. I didn't watch the actual. Well, it was only one debate. The second debate, he, he, he must have been on duty running the six hospitals that he claims to uh, be affiliated with, but he, cause he didn't show up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's too I was talking to the wrong phone. Sorry about that. Okay. Here we are. Uh, so what, what I am now reading that while over the summer, it looked like Biden had given the Democrats a lift what I'm reading is they are now cratering in the polls, that it's going to be a red wave. Please tell me that's not correct. Well, we don't know if it's going to be a red wave or, it's going to, or what it's going to be. Uh, but yes, that's what everyone is talking about. That's the narrative that the media is pushing right now. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Democrats are the committees that are, are you know, spending all the big money are all being badly run by Wall Street types, and they don't want to. They don't want to talk about uh, any kind of populist message. Uh, the polls have been clear from day one. They never. They never change. They, they're always the same. The number one concern of voters is the economy, and yet the Democrats aren't speaking about the economy. That's not what. That's not what their uh, their messaging is about. So of course, uh, there's a little bit of a problem there. They, they, it starts with the fact 
that the Democrats shouldn't keep appointing Wall Street types from Rahm Emanuel right to the current schmuck, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney. They shouldn't keep uh, appointing people like that to run the DCCC. Big, big mistake. They think everyone is like them, uh, you know, not not you know, not populist, anti-populist. That's, those are anti-populist people, so we never get populist messaging. So the, Demo- the Democrats are spending tens of millions of dollars uh, that they're wasting. I mean, the, impo- the, the issues that they're, that they're campaigning on, are, I'm not saying they're not important. They are. Certainly, uh, women's right to choice is very, very important, and, and that needs to be out there for sure. But that's not going to win them the election. If they can't make a populist, progressive uh, economic case, that's it. Republicans are going to win. That's a problem. Right. Well, let, let's go through a couple of races that we should be worried about. Uh, we, at, this, at this point, we should be worried about all the races. Uh, uh, this morning, someone who's been getting the, uh, you know, the, the polling the, that doesn't become pu- public, the, the campaign polling, called me up and was hysterical about these uh, races that are going to lose, including possibly Sean Patrick Maloney himself. And he moved, if you remember, into uh, Mondaire Jones's district. This would be the head of the DCCC. Yes. Forced Mondaire Jones out of his own district. And now it's looking like he's going to lose that very, very blue district. And how would that how would that make you feel? Really, really, really happy. (laughs) I would dance. I would sing and dance. I mean, the idea of someone like Sean Patrick Maloney not being in Congress in January is it would be it would be like a Christmas present. Plus, he's the guy who's supposed to get all the Democrats elected to the House. That's his job, and he yes, that's his job. And he can't. And, and the, the Democrats fall for electing him to that post. They elected that idiot. They shouldn't have, but they did it anyway. And I mean, he is like a, the male version of Cherry Bustos who resigned because she was she failed. He's just like her. There's no difference, except he's a man, she's a woman. That's the difference. And so the House, where do you see uh, some more surprises like that? That is kind of shocking to think that. Yes. You know, I don't know that it's true. Like I said, it's an internal poll. You know, the, the... all the polls of that district show that he will win. This one just came out, uh, didn't come out, but this one uh, was propagated today. And like I said, someone called me and, ch- and said, look at this, this is unbelievable. And uh, at the same time, showed me another poll that uh, for, for the, uh, the North Shore of Long Island, which is a blue-leaning district uh, with a moderate, so-called moderate Democrat with lots of money, and he's running against like a crackpot Republican, and suddenly the crackpot Republican is ahead in this poll. How do you if accept? That, if that's true, we we are looking at a really really bad uh, election night. I know the American people are stupid. Well, some some are, or at least yeah, they're a lot dumber than they're pretty dumb. They've got you know you know what I want I want you you to remember something not so much you but our listeners, as dumb as they are, 7 million more voted against Trump's second term than voted for Trump's second term. So keep that in mind. But that's California. 
it's not just California. It's, it's, it, you, you said the American people. Californians are the American people, too. You know, and he won very, very well. He did very, very well in other states, not just California. He did great in Maryland. He did great in uh, New York. He did great in Massachusetts. There are, you know, and, and he did badly in North Dakota. What does it tell you, though, about the American people that the Republican Party is not only still in play, they might be taking both houses. What does that tell you? Yes, it's what I've been writing about uh, for several years now. You know, it's not so much how bad uh, the Republicans are, it's how bad the people who vote for them are. You know... Can you really can you really blame the Democrats? I, the Democrats are horrible. When you say the Democrats, you, you're talking about uh, elected officials. Or you're talking about people who vote Democratic. Who you voting? Who are you talking? About? Uh, I'm talking about like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. These are despicable people. There are only a handful of good Democrats serving in the Senate. There are more in the House, but they're still better than anything the Republicans are offering, and yet. Yes. The American people are split. They half this country would choose the Republicans. That that's seems like it's more of a problem of the the American people than it is of the Democratic Party. Well, yes, that's what I've been saying. But it's also you know look, there are a certain number of people who are just set that they're not open to arguments from either side. Either they're Republicans or they're Democrats. And then there's the people who are open to hearing the case in between. You might want to call them swing voters. The Democrats aren't doing a good job in reaching them this time. You know, they put all their eggs in one abortion basket, and that's helped them on some level to certainly to, uh, you know, get some people to register and, and get excited about the election. But Still, they read the same polls, they get the same polls, they see that it's the economy. And the fact of the matter is, is that the Democrats are always better than the Republicans on the, econ- on the economy. But when you get the so-called leadership, whether it's Chuck Schumer or uh, Sean Patrick Maloney or Jeff, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, these people don't believe in the same things that the Democratic Party supposedly believes in. These are Wolf- These are Wall Street people. They are not people who believe in the FDR vision of, of the Democratic Party. Not even a little. Not even a little. They're there, you know, Sean Patrick Maloney, why is he a Democrat instead of a Republican? Because he's gay. He's openly gay. He's married to a man. They've got a bunch of children. He can't be in the Republican Party. So he's a Democrat. Is he really a Democrat? Yeah, on that issue, he is. Right. But, but on, on the basic economics... Of, uh, of a progressive movement? No, he's, he's as far away from the Democratic Party as a Republican is. Okay, let's go through, let's look at the Senate, because I was told the Senate, I believe the Senate, is a safe bet for the Democrats, and they were going to maybe pick up some seats. It was looking that way, yes. Uh, let's go to Mandela Barnes. Uh, I like... Never a good candidate. I, I, I don't in know Wisconsin. on this show... But I, I certainly said it all along that he was a he was a weak candidate, and there were there were much better candidates in the primary, and they picked him. They made a mistake, but they picked him, uh, and uh, now he's not going to win. 
but I, I didn't think he ever would have a chance to win. Ron Johnson is just one of the worst members of the U.S. Senate, just incredibly bad. And I think for sure that uh, other candidates would have been able to beat him. Mandela Barnes can't beat him. The Republicans run a racist campaign. They know how to do it. And uh, and, and, and Mandela Barnes is black. Uh, Mandela Barnes has said some things in the past that don't work. There's a whispering campaign going on about him. He's not American. Have, uh, During the debate, Johnson said, you're, you're anti-American. It's very similar to what they called Barack Obama. Yeah, well, it, 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 remember, Obama won Wisconsin both times. Right. Uh, as did uh, uh, Ron Johnson, unfortunately. But the, 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 fact, is, the fact is is that uh, you, you went right to the, the, uh, the race where the Democrats have, have just absolutely made a terrible mistake in the candidate they picked. Right. Adam Laxall. Wisconsin is a 50-50 state. Democrats tend to win uh, statewide there. Uh, and, you know, just because Trump won the state one time, not two times, one time, very narrowly, uh, yeah, people think it's the red state. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think it is a red state. And that's the only reason that Mandela Barnes has any chance at all, because there are a lot of people who are Democrats and they're going to vote for the Democrat. But in terms of the independents and the swing voters, the Democrats aren't delivering a message that's going to win them over. And the Republicans are undermining Barnes. And that was easy to see from before the primary started that he would be easily undermined. I hate to say it because I would I would like to see him win. Uh, But like I said, weak candidate, not bad, but weak. Talk to me about Mike Lee in Utah, Republican, best friend, <laughs> best friends. He's got it in the bag. Oh, he does. Sorry. He has it. Yeah, there, there was a there was one poll that showed uh, what is his name? McMullen uh, creeping up on him. Uh, but it, no, it, it, the state is too red for that. It's not going to happen. OK. Of course, on the other hand, you've got Oklahoma, where the Democrat, so-called Democrat, not really a Democrat, is ahead. Uh, let me go back to Utah for a second. McMullen's not a Democrat. The, the Democrats are supporting him, but McMullen is an independent who's really, he's really a Republican running as an independent with Democratic support. It, it, pretty disgusting. Oklahoma, which is what, one of the reddest states in the country, um, the, the, the governor, uh, Kevin Stitt, is in trouble. He's now, you know, this woman who is has been slowly creeping up on him. Every poll shows her a little bit closer, and now she's ahead of him, and she's ahead of him significantly. She's not ahead of him by two or three points. I don't remember the exact number. You're talking about Madison, Madison really Horn? Madison? Now, now here we have it again. Is she a Democrat? No, she's not. She's running as a Democrat, but, you know, a week and a half ago she was a Republican. She's been a Republican her whole life, and she's still a Republican, claiming to be a Democrat so she could run against him in a general because she knew she couldn't win in a primary because the uh, Oklahoma uh, Republican Party is so uh, so Trumpist that she would have no chance. But she's a moderate, conservative Republican. She, she may beat Kevin Stitt. Okay. Talk to- the, 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 what, I, what I saw is basically all the Democrats are going to vote for her, whatever that means in Oklahoma, but you've also got about 20% of the Republicans who are saying, you know what? She's a Republican just like us. She has been her whole life. 
she's she's the head of their uh, education uh, department. They've elected her over and over again as a Republican. And, you know, she's made it pretty clear that she hasn't changed. She's still the same old uh, Republican conservative. So she's got about 20% of the Republican vote backing her instead of Stitt, who's very, uh, very extreme. Adam Laxalt in Nevada is coming. Yeah. It, it looks like he's going to beat Senator Mosto, Democrat. Well, I, I no, it, he could. It doesn't look like he's going to. She's still, you know, if the last time I looked at the polling average, uh, which was a day or two ago, she was still uh, fractionally ahead of him. She, uh, you know, she's not, not the greatest Democrat. She's certainly, you know, running on uh, abortion, abortion, abortion. And, uh, you know, she, she's not a populist, so she's, she's not going to make a populist economic um, uh, narrative to, to give the voters. And it's probably too late for that anyway. Marco Rubio in Florida, what are we looking at in terms of voter suppression after Hurricane Ian? What is DeSantis doing to Democratic blue counties? Is he making it harder to vote? You could always count on Republicans to make it as hard as they can. The bigger the asshole, the harder they'll make it. There's not a bigger asshole than DeSantis. So, yeah, he's making it difficult. When you're talking about that particular uh, Senate race, you know, there, there really was never a chance that um, uh, Rubio was going to be defeated, probably not by anyone, certainly not by Val Demings, who, you know, doesn't have a lot to offer. It, you know, her her campaign is basically, whatever there is of it, is, you know, ra- basically raising money with the purpose of turning out the African-American vote. The African-American vote isn't big enough. It's not big enough. So... You know, she doesn't have any kind of appeal to the working class. Uh, she's been in Congress. They can, if they want to look at her record, they can look at her record. She is a, a moderately conservative Democrat, always has been. And, you know, uh, Rubio and, and his people are talking about her as though she's, you know, defund the police, when in fact she's, she was a police chief. And she's married to a cop. And she's married to the, the head cop of Orange County, who, who's very, very popular, by the way. So, you know, I don't I don't I have never run across anybody uh, outside of her campaign who thought she had any chance to win at all. And that's you know, so you're picking these these races where, you know, that are structurally unsound for Democrats. Let's, let's right. talk about races where the Democrats have really had a chance and uh, and they're not in bad shape now. Well, the only one I'm thinking about, the only seat that I see flipping is uh, the Republican Senate seat in Pennsylvania with Fetterman. Yeah, that's one, and that's a, that's a good one. Fetterman is a uh, is making a, a, a populist message, and he is a populist type of a, a politician, and always has been. And he's been elected statewide, and they know him. And uh, he's running against the clown. So you know, one of the one of the important things we've been talking all cycle about how um, the Republicans are suffering because they have bad candidates, which is true. They do have very bad candidates. But you know who else has bad candidates? Yes, that's right, right. the Democratic Party. They have bad candidates, too. And uh, so we're back to uh, lesser of two evils. But, but the Fetterman, de- Fetterman, on the other hand, is a good candidate, which is why he's running ahead. And there are other good candidates, too. Now, you know, you go to a place like uh, New Hampshire, 
where the Democrats have the, the worst of their incumbents seeking re-election, um, uh, Maggie Hassan. Absolutely terrible. I think I've told you in the past, this is a woman who couldn't even bring herself to vote to raise the minimum wage. She is just horrendous. I don't see how she, th- she thinks that Democrats should vote for her. But on the other hand, the Republicans picked this guy, Don Baldick, who's so much worse that she's actually ahead. She shouldn't be. She should be losing. Uh, but the, the Republicans managed to pick a MAGA nut with, with, who has gone, gone off and like spouted the most incredibly insane stuff. He's tried to take it back. But, you know, once you say it, you can't take it back. Right. In the governor's... I mean, 30-something percent of the vote in a crowded primary. The, um, the current governor, Sununu, got about 70% in his primary. And here, Baldock is talking about that Sununu is not even a real Democrat, and he's a traitor, and he's a Chinese spy. <laughs> I mean, Baldock's insane. I mean, he's literally insane. And that's why the Democrats are, uh, are, might wind up winning with, with their horror, own horrible candidate, Maggie Hassan, in New Hampshire. So some good news in the governor's and, races? And, and, and wait, we, we, we left out Arizona. Oy. That, that's, right. But we're going to keep that seat. It looks, it looks that way, yes. It, you know, the Republicans made a big play there. And uh, it, it looks like they're falling flat on their face, even with uh, this uh, immense amount of money that um, Peter Thiel is, if I tell you pronounce his name, Peter Thiel is spending. Right. Uh, he spent $15 million already. He just said he's spending another five. So that's $20 million, plus he's leaning on his wealthy friends to put in money. And it doesn't seem to matter. It, it seems like uh, the Democrats are going to win that one. So, yeah. that, so that's kind of good news. Uh, in terms of Ohio, which is another uh, hotly contested state, right. and New Hampshire, I'm sorry, North Carolina, another. Well, let's do Ohio first because that is a potential flip for the Democrats. Well, yeah, I guess it's a potential slip, slip. But I mean, again, the Democrats don't have a great candidate. He's been doing way, way, way better than I ever imagined he would, but not better enough to win. He's gonna, he's getting it. He's get, he's keeping it close, but. But that doesn't mean that you get a Senate seat. I played clips of Tim Ryan just demolishing J.D. Vance in that last yep. debate. In the debate. And he, I'm looking at the polling, and he didn't get a bump from it. No, the opposite of a bump. He went down. It's a Republican state. And, and you know, it was lots and lots and lots of Republican voters. Uh, and Vance is, is a really bad candidate. And Tim Ryan doesn't have a great record. Uh, he's he's claiming that he's trying to run the, uh, a, a Sher- Sherrod Brown kind of campaign and that he's he's a populist of some kind, but he's not. He uh, you know, he's, he's he's not getting across. He's not coming across to the voters there as authentic. And okay. I can see why. Boy, that really and, surprised me because J.D. In North Carolina, it's a, again, it's a Republican seat. The Democrats hoped they could win with uh, Cherry Bustos. I'm sorry, uh, Cherry, uh, not Bustos. Cherry Beasley. Beasley, Cherry Beasley. Yeah, who was a a, a, a very short-term ter- Supreme Court justice who was, who was appointed to that job and then was immediately defeated in the next election. And, you know, she's not a very strong candidate. She's a fairly weak candidate, as is um, the Republican, who was just picked out of the blue practically by Trump. And he's a weak candidate, too. 
So it's very close. Congressman uh, and, Bud. And the voters have to decide which weak candidate do they want, the Democratic weak candidate or the Republican weak candidate. And looking at the governor races, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania is going to slaughter Doug Mastriano. Is that correct? Well, I mean, yes, in a way. But it's very, very hard to slaughter someone in a 50-50 state. And Pennsylvania is not exactly a 50-50 state, but there are a lot of Republicans. And they're just, you know, they don't, they might not be happy with Mastriano, but they're not going to vote for uh, 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 Josh Shapiro. Will Josh Shapiro win? Yes. Will it be a, a safe margin? Yes. I don't know about slaughter. And people talk of him as though he's presidential timber. Uh, well, he'll have a chance to prove it as a governor, but right. I, I, I don't see it. Stacey Abrams. He's a conservative Democrat. Brian Kemp stole the governorship from Stacey Abrams four years ago. Probably. Yeah, he was Secretary of State. Yes. He, he took, what, 50,000 black people off the voter rolls? Uh, this should be Stacey Abrams. Uh, she should be running for re-election. She should be. And, but she's not doing well. She's struggling. Well, no, it, it, it's, it's, you're right. She's not doing as well as she should. She's struggling. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not like she's struggling to get to 40%. She's struggling to get to 50%. Uh, do I think she's going to make it? No. You don't? Yeah, I don't. So this is going to be a depressing Tuesday night, isn't it? Uh, I think it's going to be a depressing Tuesday night. I think the Democrats are going to lose the House. And uh, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, it, and it'll be very close in the Senate. Wow. Very disappointing. The, they had to do their job with the January 6th committee hearings. And they, I think they did a great job. They had to do that. Politically, though, it doesn't register. And now Bernie is saying, while abortion is important, you've got to run on something other than abortion. Not other than, along with. Along with, yeah. He said, right. Uh, I Yes, Bernie, Bernie is, is someone who is demanding that the Democratic Party run on a populist uh, uh, economic uh, agenda. That's what he wants, and that's what he's only wanted, and he's saying it out loud, and he's saying, he, you know, who's he talking to? He's talking to a bunch of Wall Street guys, and they right. don't agree. Right. You know, they're, they are not going to run a campaign that's going to alienate their wealthy Wall Street donors. That's the story. That's the story. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer, Blue America PAC, Read him every day over at Down With Tyranny. And next week, I promise I will fix the mixer. I don't know why you couldn't come in through the mixer. <laughs> Just the story. Anyway, thank you, Howie. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, I have a new mixer, and I thought it was working. And how bad did that sound, Dan? David Cobb joins us. How bad did that sound? It was, it was pretty good. It was fine. Okay. But it's just. I'll be honest. Yeah. And as somebody who just called in, I can tell you, Faldo, I couldn't tell that there was a problem at 
uh, it, it, he sounded like he always sounds on my end. Okay. Joe in Norway said, said it sounded uh, old-timey. Well, David Cobb joins us, and you look like you're coming to us. You look great, but where are you? Well, thank you for asking. I'm in Texas. I'm visiting my mama. I'm I'm looking out over a herd of cattle as we speak and uh, uh, several goats, uh, chickens and turkeys and so forth. So I'm actually visiting uh, uh, my mama for this week, uh, but I definitely wanted to Right. Uh, to join this conversation. And you are also a a manager. I think that's the term for the Weot tribe in Northern. Weot. Remember, like a little Melot, how a Scotsman would, would call a diminutive Melot. Weot. The Weot tribe in Northern California. You're in Texas right now. I am indeed. Did, did you grow up on a ranch? You know, listen, I grew up uh, uh, in rural Texas. It wasn't a ranch. I actually grew up on the Texas Gulf Coast. Uh, so rather than uh, a ranch, uh, my daddy uh, ran a junkyard. So I grew up <laughs> on a junkyard. Uh, but my uh, my early uh, jobs were uh, as deckhands on shrimp boats and oyster barges. So are you near uh, Galveston? What, what part of Yes, as a matter of fact. So if you know Galveston as a barrier island, right? It's a long uh, island uh, along the... So I was on the mainland side of Galveston Island on, on Dickinson Bay. Ah. Uh, so on a peninsula that juts out into Dickinson Bay. And that's we a very cosmo cosmopolitan, <laughs> right? Isn't it very... A lot of African-Americans, isn't, hasn't it always Galveston been... Island is... Uh, San Leon is not because uh, San Leon, again, the, the island was actually quite cosmopolitan. And you're right about that. It was uh, 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 a very sophisticated uh, place. Because uh, it had black it people. Absolutely. A lot of black folk. Uh, San Leon was on the mainland side and a peninsula that jutted out into it, a, a tiny little peninsula. But our joke, Feldo, was if you in San Leon, you either meant to come here are you lost, right? You don't, you don't go through San Leon to get anywhere. There was one road that did a U-turn or, you know, a big U through that peninsula. So it was a very interesting place. I have a uh, confession to make. Yes, sir. Uh, I shouldn't let my listeners know this. I love Texas. What, I What? 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 I love Texas. I love it. I love the people. I love the land. It's another country. Every time I go there, I think, wow, this is this is the greatest. This is it really is. Greg Abbott, uh, notwithstanding. But well, listen, I, I got a, I got a, a joke and then a serious comment. And here's the joke. So I'm from Texas and I'm proud to be from Texas. And for the rest of my life, I will always be from Texas because <laughs> I worked hard, Feldo. I saved my money. I bought a fine pair of boots and I walked my ass out of that backward state. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I think Greg Abbott is going to win. He's going to beat Beto. There are some really good people who have come out of Texas. Listen, thank or, you for or saying that. Who have stayed yeah, but, in Texas. And you... My Molly Ivins. Let's go. Uh -huh. It's a list. Molly Ivins, Jim Hightower. Right. Ronnie Duggar is a journalist. Uh, if y'all don't know Ronnie Duggar, 
Ronnie Duggar founded the Texas Observer, which most folks uh, acknowledge and agree to be the Texas version of the Nation magazine. Uh, the, the list of genuine progressive populists that come out of Texas is long and strong. Uh, and I'll tell you something, the, uh, it, it, when, when I listen to you talk to Howie Klein about the struggles that the Democratic Party is happening, I thought to myself, the conversation I had with Ronnie Duggar uh, back in the 1990s, uh, who said, and remember, Texas used to be a Democratic Party stronghold, right? And Ronnie Duggar, I'll never forget the conversation, Faldo. He said to me, Cobb, I'll tell you the exact date that the Democratic Party shot itself on the foot and ended up on a trajectory to become Republican. And I said, all right, Ronnie, uh, I'll bite. What's the date? Now, I don't remember the exact date, but he did. But the, here's the kicker. He said, you know, X date. And I said, all right, Ronnie, I'll bite. What happened on that date? He said, Cobb, I'm glad you asked, because that was the date that the Texas Democratic Party's executive committee made a conscious decision to stop spending its money on funding rank and file precinct chair people all across the state to do grassroots organizing and instead made the shift to multi-million dollar media buys on television and radio. And Ronnie Duggar's argument was that when they made that decision, they by necessity began a tilt towards Wall Street America and the big funders. It culminated with the Bill Clintons and the Democratic uh, uh, Party's uh, rightward tilt. But the Dem Texas Democratic Party was at the cutting edge of, of, of what became the Clintonian neoliberal Democrats, right? And as you were talking, the reason that that conversation was ringing in my ears is because I thought this is an election year, this midterm, where Democrats should be shellacking the Republican Party. This should be a runaway victory, uh, and a, an absolute rejection of the Republican Party. But most independent voters are, are, are tilting Republican. And why? Because the Democratic Party refuses to embrace the full-throttled economic progressive populism that Bernie Sanders represents. It is the path to victory, but the Democratic Party neoliberal li leadership would rather lose to Republicans than anger Wall Street America. That's what's happening. Right. And racism. I'm naive. Uh, they, they talk about the stubborn stain of racism and misogyny and hatred for the LGBTQ community. Uh, the Republicans, when you watch Ron Johnson campaigning, that's a winning message. Call for some. But, you know, I, I, I'm going to remind you, uh, Feldo, uh, and maybe we should come back and revisit this, but uh, on this program, uh, I actually laid out some of the best data uh, that I've been able to yes. find anywhere on what is the winning message. And the winning message is not economic uh, justice as a standalone, not racial justice as a standalone. The winning message is a merger of both of those two things together. And again, this is hard data. It's clear. It's unequivocal. It's a winning message, right? 
What is not the winning message is how the Democrats are trying to fumble this, which is not really economic populism and identity politics as opposed to racial justice. They are they have a winning hand and they are playing it miserably. It's like they're trying to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not trying to lose. I'm not saying that. But it, they're playing so well, badly. One would think they must be. They can afford to lose. Nancy yes. Pelosi, uh, I, I don't think she'll make it. I don't think she would be speaker again. I think this is her swan song. Chuck Schumer, his life isn't good. I know he enjoys power, but so he'll be the minority leader instead of the majority leader. More fun to be the majority leader, but it's not like his life is going to change all that much. So. Listen. That's exactly right. I completely agree with you. And somebody's in the chat room. See what what they do. I can tell you're looking at the chat room. You're wrong. I was you're wrong because I was actually looking up the name. I couldn't think of the name Dick somebody. It was Dick Morris. So I was actually doing a little research. Oh, right. Right. So that I could uh, I could uh, I could sound smarter than I am. But I actually <laughs> I had to research and remember what his name was. But it was Dick Morris. Right. Uh, who coined the phrase triangulation right uh where there is like remember howie's comment earlier in the program right i thought it was astute and that is the the Demo- the voters do not perceive several of the candidates to be authentic and you know why feldo because their candidates are not authentic right they are trying the democratic party is putting up these corporate democrats they are, they, and they're trying to pretend as if they're uh, they're they're uh, you know populist progressive, but they're not. So this triangulation. Well, it uh, worked. It, the, the legend of Dick Morris is he was, I think he was Jesse Helms's campaign advisor, and Clinton brought him in in '96 to take on Dole for re-election. And Dick Morris said, "You have to triangulate. You have to you have to separate yourself." from the House of Representatives, the Democrats Mm -hmm. in the House of Representatives. You have to be uh, half Republican. And he won. And and, and he won. He did. Yes, he won that election. Right. And he destroyed. Uh, It was a Pyrrhic victory. It's absolutely a Pyrrhic victory, because here's what conservatives understand at their core. And that is. You act like framing is not just clever messaging, right? Framing is the lens by which you see the world. And if you are able to shift the frame to, in the Republicans' case, to the right, then you force everybody else to follow you, right? And so Dick Morris and the triangulation policy was a pyrrhic victory because it did give Bill Clinton an election victory for re-election, but it basically made it impossible to continue to win elections past that. Then you couple that with the incredibly obtuse and just downright stupidness of Democratic Party legislators uh, during redistricting fights, uh, and Democrats continue to show up for gunfights with knives, right? They, they they do not understand what they're dealing with. Uh, you know, to, to quote a, a famous uh, uh, ad campaign, Faldo, this Republican Party is not your father's Republican right. Party. Like this is they're dealing with something profoundly different and they don't 
either they either don't understand it or they don't act accordingly. You uh, reminded me of something. When Clinton ran in 92, I can remember saying it's nice to see the Democrats winning again. I remember that. The, the thing I like about I didn't I didn't vote for Clinton. I didn't want him. I wanted back then. I think I wanted Jerry Brown. I was going to say, I know who you supported in yeah. 92. It would have been Jerry Brown. Right. <laughs> and but I remember, you know, I held my nose and voted for Bill Clinton when he won. I remember saying it's nice to have a Democrat who knows how to win. What I fail to recognize is we we had the House. We had the House of Representatives. I don't think we had the Senate, but. Uh, For the he, first two years, yes, I think we'll have to look back at that. But I think I think it was a, a, a majority had both houses for two, two of the first two, four years. OK, so. Uh, you know, under Reagan, there was this myth that he was killing the Democrats. He wasn't. We kept the House. We throughout the Reagan administration, throughout the Bush administration, first Bush, we kept the House. We the Senate went back and forth. Uh, Reagan was able to do some things, but he didn't lower taxes. Listen, remember this. One of the big signature plans that uh, Reagan and his ilk wanted was something called the North American Free Trade Agreement. He could not get it done. You can thank Dick Morris, Triangulation, and Bill Clinton. Who and forced, Al Gore. And, and Al Gore, who forced the North American Free Trade Agreement down our throats over the howls of protest of organized labor and environmentalists. To, and here's, here's another quip for you, Feldo. In electoral politics, as soon as you get taken for granted, you just got taken. Right. And the... The con the consist the consistent constituencies of the Democratic Party, organized labor, environmentalists, women, people of color. We are constantly taken for granted by the party leadership, and we are constantly taken. I remember what like I like I remember reading something that the great labor activist uh, uh, Al Gompers uh, once said, and that is in electoral politics we will reward our friends, and we will punish our enemies. And he said, from every election cycle, we will change depending upon what they propose, because we will have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. And that's the point. We on the left forget that it's actually about like laying out an ideological frame and then fighting for it and winning people over to it. I'll give you a perfect example here in California. We know that single-payer health care is a winning argument. Right. This cuts across party labels. People are incredibly excited about it, right? When Arnold Schwarzenegger, Republican governor, was in office, a statewide single-payer uh, initiative passed unanimously with, with every vote from the uh, Democrats in the state assembly and the state Senate in order to put it as a bill proposed for signature to Republican Schwarzenegger, who vetoed it 
all to make political points, right? When Jerry Brown beats Arnold Schwarzenegger, the very next election cycle, we cannot get the same damn bill out of committee. The Democrats who have a super majority in the state of California refuse to let that bill out. And again now with, with Newsom. They could do it right now. The, the, and again, Newsom has done some phenomenally powerful things. Like, I, I, but I think what, wasn't to, there a single payer bill ready to go? Yes. Like yes. in the past year. We could not get it out of committee, Feldo. Like this is the thing. Uh, Rendon, the, the Speaker of the House, killed it in committee. Again, like this is the problem that we are so wrapped up on election cycle after election cycle uh, that we forget the need to build the, the political structure from the bottom up that actually makes demands. And instead, we play the Democrat versus Republican game. And that's not how uh, that's not how movements that are successful think or operate. How bad are things going to get? Th catastrophize Thanksgiving for me. Listen, it's going to be bad, uh, Faldo. I mean, uh, it looks like the, the look. First of all, this election cycle that should be a a, 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 a like a walk in the park for the Democrats. Uh, I think that they are likely to lose both the House and the Senate. It's not guaranteed. It's it's still super close. But what's what's worse is. What you're seeing is the Republican Party cohere around insurrectionism, around uh, an idea that it doesn't matter how many votes are uh, like like these folks are playing to take over the government regardless of elections. They are proto fascists. So to me, that's profoundly frightening. And I don't see the Democratic Party leadership with a plan to name it and a plan to prevent it, right? Because to me, Feldo, the only way that, like you have to understand what fascism is, right? As a political economic system that's, and what they're offering and why it appeals to so many people, right? Like fascism has an appeal to a certain segment. And the way that you can defeat fascism or the way to defeat fascism is not merely to fight them in the streets, right? That's 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 the wrong way to think about it. The way to defeat fascism is to create a political economic system that makes the seeds of fascism impotent so that the seeds of fascism cannot fester and grow because people see, oh, this government, the, a, a democratic, a little d democratic republic actually works for me. And uh, it, it's actually working. The problem is that what's frightening to me is that Trump and his ilk are playing a better narrative of populism than the Democratic Party leadership is. Make no mistake about it. They don't believe it. They are liars, but they're doing it better than Democrats are. That's so, why they're losing an election that they should be walking away with. The there is an argument and this isn't the accelerationist argument where things have to get so bad that that the American people will wake up to their come to their senses. The American people, I don't think, ever come to their senses. So I'm, I'm not talking about accelerationism, but I am talking about absorbing fascists into the government so that the American people can see that 
when they actually have to roll up their sleeves, uh, they are incompetent. That a lot of uh, European countries, modern European countries that have absorbed some fascists and given them a little power, they fall flat on their face because they're not about governing, they're about hate. So let's say the Republicans take the, the House back. Uh, they'll self-immolate. They'll, they'll try to go after poor Hunter Biden, this drug addict. Uh, they'll come across as cruel. And uh, I don't think Americans have that kind of bloodlust. I mean, nothing will get done for two years. But I don't think anything was going to get... I'm trying to paint a rosier picture on losing the House. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I hear what you're doing, uh, but uh, I the problem is that I know history. Right. Uh, and in 1931, uh, under the leadership of Thalman, uh, there was a slogan that the uh, uh, the 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 what, what we would think of as the sort of the corporate uh, version of the Democratic Party uh, was using. And that was after Hitler, power turned. And what they really believed was that a united front against Nazis was not necessary because right, the fascists will win and then workers will realize that they've been lied to, that right. the, the workers would then change their opinion, uh, recognize Nazism for what it is, uh, and then uh, shift to the left. And I don't think I need to remind you or anybody on this program how that worked out. Yeah. No, I, again, I, that, that I, I, I hear you. Uh, but Look, here's the thing. I don't mind finding silver linings, but I don't want to invent them. Right. Like this is this is one of the good things about being a Marxist is it says we deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. And so objective material conditions are what they are. Uh, and and hello, Dr. Fraud. Welcome. Let me welcome Hi. Dr. Fraud here. Dr. Harriet Fraud mm -hmm. is the host of Capitalism Hits Home as well as it's not just in your head. What, what, are, you, what are you thinking about that? What I'm thinking is that I totally agree with, with uh, David Cobb. Look, one of the things is the Republicans have a whole theater wing, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump. They're exciting. They push the edge. The Democrats don't want to disappoint their corporate contributors. And therefore... They want to bring things back to the normal that led to this in the first place. And so they're about as exciting as Joe Biden. And that doesn't... Trump captures people's anger, their rage. Um, Arlie Hochschild, who's writing a book about Trumpists and going down south to talk to them on a regular basis, said that somebody said to her, I know they're lying, but they're thinking about me. They're mentioning me, right. and the, Demo the Democrats are not talking about that. Uh, the mass of Americans are dispossessed. The basic wage has got to change. Power yeah. has got to shift. Exploitation has got to end. And there's a beautiful illustration of it. I was just watching it on Indian television in that Look, America produces the most oil in the world. It could. It has the biggest reserves. But if it produced more, the big oil companies like Exxon, which have made wild profits, 
it will have to be cheaper. They don't want that. Or they could allow more drilling and more expansion on federal lands, which take would take a couple of years. But they don't want that. To keep their profits up, they need scarcity. And they want to sell all over the world at the inflated prices, inflated by our sanctions in Russia. So capitalism is undoing itself here. The contradictions of capitalism are preventing them from doing the things they want to do to compensate for this terrible inflation and keep the Democrats in power because the oil companies and the gas companies can now sell to Europe at inflated prices. They're not going to refuse that. They're going to raise the price on everybody. They don't give a shit about America. And that's capitalism is bringing itself down and fascism and socialism are its alternatives. And this is the thing I want to circle back uh, to the the theater, uh, the theater wing that uh, uh, Dr. Fraud actually mentioned. But I, to get there, I want to point out the, uh, the observation that Dr. Fraud made that I completely agree with. And that is the neoliberal center is collapsing because it, it, it can't help it. This entire political economic system is in crisis and like there may be an election cycle or two where it can maintain, but it's basically over. We're watching it play out. There's going to either be some version of fascism or some version of eco-socialism, right? The neoliberalism, it's failing. It can't, like, it's going to continue to fail. And take a look at the leadership, like, the leadership of the Republican Party have embraced Marjorie Taylor Greene. They have embraced their their the clown car, right? And literally right now, uh, we know that they are cutting deals with Marjorie Taylor Greene to give her plum assignments. It's it's all like it's all over the Washington press corps, right? They are lifting them up and 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 look at what the Democratic Party leadership does to Bernie Sanders and the squad, right? Like the, the, the wing that represents what Dr. Fraud and I are arguing is the only successful way to counter the right wing, the neoliberal leadership of the Democratic Party are undermining Bernie Sanders and the squad at every opportunity. The one way to build a progressive populist response to rising fascism is being kneecapped by Wall Street America and the Democratic Party. It's shameful. Well, because their corporate sponsors wouldn't like it because they are left-wing populists, right-wing populists. Look, fascism holds capitalism together when it's falling apart. Socialism undermines capitalism. Therefore, they're happy enough to endorse uh, fascism the way they look. It was the big industrialists, the big corporations like Krupp, who we protected and are still around, uh, who subsidized Hitler because they felt there was an alternative between and Prescott Bush, by the way. I mean, exactly. I, we should and do a show and all the others. Yes. About- the point is that they subsidized Hitler and Hitler was subsidized as an alternative to socialism, which was huge in Germany. And it, we don't hear it, but it's very exciting to watch Indian television, India, Indian television, because they are showing massive demonstrations in Germany, in, in um, the Czech Republic, in France. Get out of NATO, get out of the EU, 
get out of capitalism. It's pretty exciting. And Mélenchon is, is right there with Annie Ernaud, who just got a Nobel Prize for literature and writes about the working class. I mean, there really is a, an obvious class division here. And the United States has been blind to class since it was crushed in the 50s. And remember, Democrats helped to crush that. Absolutely. Right? Like- Obama, it got reintroduced in Occupy, the 99% and the 1%. And Obama orchestrated closing every single Occupy on the same day in a federal in fact, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Dr. Frog, because I know you were active during Occupy Wall Street uh, and a big supporter. I'm going to have to go because I promised my mama I'd be on for 30 minutes and then I would go have dinner with her. But I want to conclude with this, fellow, though. Dr. Frog just dropped something that not enough people understand. And I'm going to take the moment to, to remind folks that Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party were both populist responses to anger at what was happening uh, uh, at at different times, right? Uh, And remember, the Tea Party was angry at big government for uh, uh, Wall Street uh, takeaway, uh, give backs and bailing out the banks and so forth. And Occupy Wall Street was angry at Wall Street, right? So really, there is a Venn diagram where at its core, both of those were fueled by populist anger and resentment about big government and big corporations working hand in hand against the interest of ordinary people. Here's the thing that's uh, worth pointing out, that the the Tea Party was subsumed within the Republican Party. That's clear. That's how they took all the, the energy out of it. But when Occupy Wall Street... when Democrats were sent and dispatched there to try to pull them in, to their credit, the core people of uh, Occupy Wall Street and those encampments all across the country said, a pox on both your houses. We are autonomous. We are independent. We're not following uh, uh, your lead of just going into the Democratic Party. And all you have to do is look at the Freedom of Information Act, and you can. it, it is proven that on the, the uh, on a date certain, and I don't have it off the top of my head, but the Obama administration's Department of Homeland Security held briefings with every major city across this country, and the next week systematically began to dismantle those encampments all across the country. Why? Because Occupy Wall Street refused to just go into the Democratic Party. They were building a movement for the 99%. It was a peaceful revolution in motion, and the Obama administration and the Democratic Party leadership crushed it. Yeah. Let's let's do this. David Cobb, thank you so much. Go have dinner with your mother. How do people contact you? So you can reach me on Facebook at David Keith Cobb. I'm on Twitter at David K. Cobb. Uh, or if you uh, want to do it the old-fashioned way, reach me at David K. Cobb at gmail.com. Fantastic. This is what I want to do. My rice and beans are ready. We're going to come back with Dr. Harriet Fraud and continue this conversation. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, and we will be back with Dr. Harriet Fraud.
Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bellum novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller, magic kit, so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender A 50 tequila, in case I go on a bender My attorney's number, in case I want to change my You're gender I'm traveling light Normal service will resume in a few moments Self-esteem, I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies. You know, you hit the wrong button and there's no sound.
Welcome back. Sorry about that. Ah, having a little, as usual, I'm having technical problems. Can you hear me, Dr. Harriet Fraud? Yes, I can. I can. And, and look, uh, can you, Dan, can you hear Dr. Fraud? Yep, there's no trouble. Good. Uh, actually, hang on. There is. Uh, What's the trouble? Uh, say something again, Dr. Fraud. What's the trouble, David? Uh, there's just a sound problem. And Dan, can you say something? Yep. I don't hear any trouble other okay. than All right. what we normally hear. <clears throat> All right. Welcome back. Sorry for that. Uh, they, Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. And... I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about. But we were talking earlier about the 20th uh, Communist Party Congress meeting in China. They have cracked down on the worshiping of celebrities in China. They don't want young people gossiping about movie stars and becoming passionate about their rock stars and musicians. Not a bad idea. I mean, I'm, I'm not in favor of totalitarian mind control. But as a thought exercise, there's something to be said for discouraging yeah. young That's people right. and adults from obsessing on celebrity. And trying to say that their own lives will never be important and subsuming their life in the life of somebody who looks more glamorous. To respect the average person and the enormous contribution we all make to making the, anything work rather than some person that's built up by the media as a superstar. That's right. really anti-democratic, profoundly. I uh, get People magazine I'm part of some subscription on Apple News, so I get People Magazine as part of this bundle. And you can go back, and every week, somebody new is on the cover of People Magazine. Normally, unless there's some tragedy, they're selling the face of a very successful person who seemingly has it all. And as an experiment sometimes, because I can now thumb through a year's worth of People Magazines you begin to realize how all these people for one week seemingly have it all and they are as their fame is as disposable as the magazine is it just disappears and yet we all somehow i fall prey to oh they have it all look at them they're, yeah. they're famous they they have it all and then they're completely forgotten about the next week. And it is part of a way to control us as consumers and as citizens. And it's also a way to get us to forget to make something out of our own lives and fight together to make a better world and right. instead just adulate someone who on paper looks successful right. within the system, even though they're usually personal wrecks. You know, look at Trump. He's failed at everything, and he's on his umpteenth marriage, and she lives in a separate wing of the White House, and his dad gave him $214 million as a little something to get started, 
and he's just failed. And he went through it all. Yep, he went through it all. So what, what, you, you, you're from New York. How do you explain the fact that he is not behind bars? How do you explain this? You know why? Because I think that the Democrats are timid. Not Tish James. She's not timid. But certainly uh, the attorney general under Adams said he wasn't going to pursue it until he was pressured. Because they're lick spittles, because they don't care, because they want to cash in, because they're capitalists. And they, too, are in celebrity culture and want to be in celebrity culture. Look at Adams having declared when he tore down those tents that the homeless lived in. You're talking about the mayor of New York City. Yes, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, that a tent is a degraded way to live. Now he wants to put the immigrants in tents, and he's decided it's a great idea. And just their whole thinking is only to get themselves, he's a perfect example, grinning, getting himself in the paper, taking credit for all the things he didn't do, and pushing aside all the things that he doesn't do at all, and he should, ignoring the class possibilities, for example. Um, There was a study done of how many dwellings in New York City have been on the shit list for violations for more than five years, 57,000 units. Of course, the city could take those over. If you haven't, you know, gotten rid of your rats, your roaches, you haven't put on the heat and so on for five years, the city takes your building, refurbishes it, and rents it out. That That's 57,000 units right there. 57,000 buildings have that problem, and they all have multiple units. How about taking those hotels where everybody could have a nice room and a bathroom? Some of the hotels have little kitchenettes. Perfect for the immigrants that are coming in. But no, their profits have to be protected. Capitalism is always tripping itself up like they are on the oil thing. There's Biden wanting the Saudis to take a loss so the American oil companies don't have to. And so the United States can look good, when they're in an alliance, they're allied with Russia. The BRICS, the, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are in an economic pact. And Iran, and um, they have about seven or eight other applicants, but Iran and Argentina are applying for membership. The balance of power is shifting. And within the capitalist system, Biden can't, he can't fix it. He can't fix it. He could force the American producers that produce the most oil in the world to produce more and bring their prices down. No way are they doing that. Right. So we can, you know, we have an inflation because they can get more money now for oil and everything needs oil and gas and electricity. He can't put a price cap on what they can ask. And so it's it's just tripped up by its own capitalist greed. And there's no maneuverability in the Democratic Party. And the rich, the very wealthy, 
they don't mind inflation, right? They're, they're not. They have the money. And, and, and it means more profits. I'm watching the earnings reports come out from the last quarter. The corporations are doing very well, thank you very much. Inflation means they get to jack up prices, which means bigger profits. It's the same reason oil companies have record profits when the price of gasoline goes up. That's right. And they're not going to save it for American consumers. They're going to sell it all over the world at the going price, and they're not going to give Americans a better price. And our president isn't going to force them to by having a price cap on American gas and oil. That would keep inflation down. Everything needs electricity and gas. So, you know, they won't do it. And so they're stuck. So you've got this clown, Jerome Powell, running the Federal Reserve, raising interest rates. He alone, the Federal Reserve cannot combat inflation because inflate, one third of inflation is rent. Nobody talks about this. I'm a broken record on this. One third of inflation is rent. He, he's, not, he's not going to bring down the price of rent. In fact, no, he's, he's going like to raise Eric it. Eric Adams isn't either. You yeah. know, they're not going to bring down the price of, of uh, rent because Redney, the real estate board of New York, is going to control the politicians. And look, at first, de Blasio did make some efforts at first. But, you know, it, they get caught up within the capitalist system. And unless the country's in a complete wreck, like it was in the 30s, where FDR could say to his rich cohorts, hey, listen, buddies, you won't have anything unless you allow me to tax you at 96.8%. They kept plotting throughout. And as soon as he died, they worked on their revenge. Right. But he did it because there was a threat from the street. And Americans don't have a unified left and they don't have that threat from the street. It's starting in Germany, where there are big marches. Get out of NATO. Get out. Fran of the There's going to be a general strike in Paris tomorrow. Right. Amazing. And Mélenchon is right out front. And so is Ernie. Annie Ernaud, the Nobel Prize winner who writes working class novels. You know? the, only, the only problem with that strike is it's in solidarity with the refinery workers. Yeah, well, they want to raise. Well. And it's also because they want to live. They right. want to be able to afford to live. A lot of the signs that I saw when I watched the news feed were about, we're not paying for NATO's proxy war. Okay. In Russia, we're not going to suffer. The American people have been polled. They, they want peace in Ukraine. They're questioning Biden's uh, policy. But we're not consulted when it comes to war. We're not. And we're not marching in the streets demanding. Why is that? that? The 43 billion that they've dedicated to um, Ukrainian arms should be spent in changing education in our country and creating free preschool for everybody. So what does, that, what does that say about the American people? Because earlier in the show, we were talking about these young kids in Great Britain gluing themselves to the street. These two young women throwing tomato soup at Van Gogh. Yeah. yeah. And gluing themselves to the wall. Are we seeing that here in the United States? Am I missing something? Mm -mm. 
No, because we're not used to thinking of our problems politically. But we we used to. We used to. You we you were part. To. You were part of the the sixties and the early seventies. Absolutely. So what happened? I think what happened was the corporate the corporations went abroad for for better profits because they could fast jet travel computers that allows that brought home the money and bought our political system. And people stood back in dazed despair, felt that only money counted and they didn't, got fat, watched TV, and were demobilized. And we didn't have, ever since crushing the Socialist Party during World War I and thereafter under Woodrow Wilson, who was a big racist and hated socialism, They crushed it then, and then when it started up again in the 40s, they crushed it then in the late 40s and 50s under McCarthy. And so that we lost the left. You know, it lasted in Germany and in France and all over Europe because the communists led the resistance, and everyone knew that. And so in spite of the Marshall Plan, rewarding countries on the basis that they didn't allow any Marxists and any communists to teach in the universities, what happened is they went into the labor unions. And wow, did that help the labor unions. And the average person couldn't forget that it was the communists who fought the resistance. And so that, and they have a left presence and they've stayed organized. Americans didn't. What's happening that's hopeful, and I, I've been accused of Pollyanna being a Pollyanna, but what's hopeful in the recognition of class and solidarity is the wave of strikes like we've never seen in the United States. We haven't seen this kind of action since the 30s. And it's a recognition of class and part of the anti-communist movement in the 1940s and in the, during World War I was because those were times of huge union organizing. And the people who were owning things wanted to destroy that. And a good handle to destroy it is accusing the left of being commies that are out to get us. So they deported all those people who they thought were communists or who were for violent overthrow of the United States. They weren't on January 6th. They're trying to violently overthrow the United States. It wasn't even in the communist manifesto or in the the program of the Communist Party at the time. But we didn't recover, and we need a unified left. We need a place for people to go where they're angry. And hopefully that will emerge out of these strikes, because every country that has had a socialist victory, whether it's France with Mélenchon, whether it's Colombia, not in South Carolina, in South America, whether it's Chile, has had the labor movement join with the indigenous movements, the racial movements, the sexual liberation movements, the feminist movements, together, and the climate people, together. Because without together, we won't win. And that is something we have not done. We need that. We need a strong socialist party, left party. I don't care what you call it. We need that. We need an alternative place to go. Not for elections, but for demonstrations and demands. 
Maybe this country is unmanageable. We're the size of the European Union. And people politically in Alabama and Mississippi are different politically from Californians and New Yorkers. If yeah. New York, if the tri-state area were its own country, if you took New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, parts of Pennsylvania, it, uh, it would rival Germany and France. It would be a bastion of liberal uh, leftist thought. Yeah, it would be. But also, that's the United States, you know, disbanding Reconstruction, allowing a whole race to be terrorized and lynched and racism to go unchecked, created this disgusting bastion of right-wing thought to rationalize racism is to, ra- is to bust up your unions because things don't work unless you're black and white together and infect your whole society. Do you think America, the problem is we're an imperial power that's spread west and it's come back to haunt us because states like Colorado, all, all this land we fought for, is biting us in the ass, that if we had just stayed the 13 original colonies, I'm being serious. Yeah, but they wanted to be, they couldn't be an enormous power unless they annexed all of these different territories. There are other countries, Russia has the biggest landmass in the world. China has the most people. It isn't just that there's a lot of us. I think it's that we've allowed this poison to infect our country and we don't have a left. But if That's you if, if you had, like they do. if California were its own country, it would be what the seventh largest economy in the world. Yep. That's right. Uh, and forty million people, if they if it was each person each vote between them and New York, we'd win. But every state has two senators, even if they have forty thousand people or so in, in Montana, you know. So what what about breaking breaking this country up. It's unmanageable. I'd be happy. To, I think they should give Mississippi to the Palestinians so they'd have a home and or give it to the Israelis, leave the Palestinians alone, let them stay there and just secede. I'd be all for seceding. Just drop out the middle like a sandwich and have California and the East Coast. And also we support them economically because they're not viable that way either. Right. They're taker states. They, Except they t- their oil, you know, their oil states, too, which is useful. They, 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 the, the states that are the problem in this country are the, the red states that receive all the benefits from the Washington, D.C. that they loathe so much. Exactly. So, now, so, they do have some mining interests and some oil, which is useful. But, you know, whatever that it could look, it wouldn't be done peacefully in any case. But I think that there are two separate countries, two separate sets there, dependent. My um, in-laws, the daughter is on disability, so is her husband. They hate the federal government and they like Trump. 
And if Trump gets in, he'll drop him right off disability. Right. They're backward, stupid, religion-ridden people. And they live for football and the war and uh, religion. I saw Herschel Walker during the debate with Raphael Warnick saying not only is he against raising the minimum wage, he's against the minimum wage. Now, we know Republicans believe that, but you're not supposed to say that. Oh, he's so stupid, he let it out. He let it out. It's, uh, and to me, it's miraculous that there are people who are dumb enough to vote against not just their own interests, but their health, their safety, their security, their family's safety, that they could watch these candidates and think, yeah, I like this person. This person hates the same people I do. I'm going to vote for this person. I, they'll cut my Medicare, my Social Security. I won't get a union job. College will become unaffordable. But they hate the same people I hate. Hatred. And giving up on those things anyway. I mean, I think it's that they figure I'm angry, they're angry. And also Herschel Walker was doing much worse relative to Warnock until they just poured 30 million Republicans more into his campaign. The man, I mean, he aborts his sentences, no less everything else. I mean, the, the man and the truth. But he'll do what they tell him to. And he is a symbol. We are saying no. And by this time, because the government has not fulfilled its promises since World War II, since FDR's death, they can't count on the government to really fulfill its promises, and they're disgusted. And also, they can't can't count on they can't count on making a living wage. They're desperate. America's four biggest employers are horrible places to work. Amazon, Walmart, Amazon, and their lives are crap. And they like to get together and scream and hate because they they have been shafted there's no question and the democrats aren't talking about how they've been shafted and the republicans are people are easily brainwashed it, it's incredible christian smalls won uh the jfk warehouse but across the street he lost it he didn't win the the union vote they're able to bring in high-priced lawyers into the warehouse, sit down, intimidate, isolate isolate the potential union organizers, but also talk to just rank-and-file workers and convince them, you don't want a union. People are easily scared. They're easily scared and they're they're easily convinced that people are robbing them because they always are. Oh, with and, the dues. Right, with dues, even though there was a recent study that if you're in a union, your life earnings is $1.3 million higher than if you're not in a union. And also they are trying to organize another um, Amazon warehouse, which may well go with the ALU. They have a lot against them. They don't have the money. And they, you know, they don't have those resources, but they've won and they're going to continue. And they were lucky because Amazon 
in a memo, it was leaked out. Amazon said, we don't have to worry about Chris Smalls. He's not articulate and he's not very bright. You know, they figured what's not just another black guy. We, we, ha- we have to wrap it up. I was thinking of you. I was watching a frontline documentary over the weekend about the rise of Trump and the countdown to January 6th. And they interviewed a woman named Mona Charon. She's a conservative columnist who worked in, I believe, the Reagan White House. She's a never-Trumper, but she's a despicable conservative, hateful. Mm-hmm. I used to read her all the time just to read hate. Mm-hmm. But she's like Bill Crystal. Oh, Trump is a bridge too far. And she gives this interview to Frontline saying, I just don't understand how he was able to hijack the entire Republican Party, especially since there's so many of us who knew who he was. And if we only stuck together, we could have fought him. And I I was by myself and I was watching and I went, you mother, if we had only stuck together. This is the party of hyper individualism. You don't stick together. You're all in it for your, you're you're all in it for yourself. Exactly. And it isn't that we're a big nation or, or a settler nation. So was New Zealand and they have one of the most progressive governments, a socialist labor party under Jacinda Arder, one of the most progressive in the world. It's our particular problem. And hopefully look, a big socialist movement emerged before World War II. One, Eugene Debs got millions of votes while in jail. And another, and and in the 30s, there was a huge left. And in the 60s, there was a big left. It's possible, but it's getting late and we have to unify. It's, uh, as the song goes, it's later than you think. That's right. That's right. It's uh, later than you think. Dr. Harriet Fraud hosts Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Who do you do? It's those? not just in your head with Liam Tate and Ekoi Hero. And I'm also, when, when BAI is on, and I think the tower is being fixed this Wednesday, but starting the Wednesday after that, um, at 2.30, I am on an interpersonal update on WBAI. Fantastic. And how do people contact you? H. Fraud, F-R-A-A-D, at gmail.com, or my website, harrietfraud.com. Great. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. We love you, Dr. Fraud. Love you, too. (laughs) Thank you. Let's go to Canada, where Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. He is teaching an amazing class on the Crusades. I start my Saturdays now, taking your class at 9.30, AM. You're the chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, the host of the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. We'll ask you who's on those important podcasts later on. I mentioned uh, you, I saw in the chat room, you talked about settler colonial history when I was saying that America is unmanageable. And, you know, I never you have to unmute yourself. But, you know, your your conversations with Professor Gerald Horn. uh, And you've talked about America just 
the, the lower 48 is settler colonial history that we colonized all these states that have now come back to bite us in the ass. You look at all the problem states that are ruining this country. This country is being ruined by, no offense to the, the lefties who live in Texas or, or Louisiana or Oklahoma, <clears throat> um, you know, we'd be better off. We'd have unions. We, we would be a better country if we didn't colonize that land. Well, we would be a cer certainly a different country. Um, I think Dr. Fraud was correct that, uh, you know, New Zealand, maybe people would say Canada are um, saner versions of these uh, settler colonial uh, countries that were established by the you know, British colonial empires of the, um, you know, 18th and 19th century, 18th centuries, essentially, but 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and, you know, but it is, it is something particular, I would say, uh, uh, about the kind of settler colonialism that was uh, pursued and practiced in the United States is that it involved not only um, eradication of indigenous peoples through genocide and uh, the establishment of uh, these systems of quarantining um, indigenous peoples on reserves. Um, and in that respect, all of those countries have um, many structures in common that were developed historically. And in fact, they learned from one another. Uh, Something might be pioneered as a technique for managing, you know, the surviving indigenous populations in one place. And this would then be the subject of, um, you know, interest and study and reports that might inform policy in some of the others. But in addition to um, the settler colonial uh, struggle to dominate um, and replace uh, indigenous peoples, the United States, of course, had additional factors of uh, maintaining for almost the longest period of time in the Western Hemisphere a system of slavery and establishment of slave societies and plantation agriculture in the South uh, uh, principally. Of course, there were other parts uh, of the country that had slavery until they were outlawed in particular states. Um, uh, but that was usually of a domestic uh, kind of household slavery. Um, it's really the plantation economies of the Caribbean and the South, and of course the Latin America that really define what we would call slave societies as opposed to say societies with slavery. Now slavery is an institution of subordination of others, uh, uh, turning people into property um, all across the world in pre-modern history and even surviving in various forms. And one could say transformed into modern versions and varieties today. But there's a distinction to be drawn between those societies that have had slavery as a component of their social fabric and those where it's fundamentally constitutive of the social and economic and thus political order. And those are rarer, much rarer. Ancient Rome 
was a slave society, you know, the galley slaves, the plantation slaves and all of these, uh, you know, farms in uh, the Italian countryside or Spain. It was through war and enslavement of peoples that that kind of system was able to operate. So those are slave societies. And the U.S. South is a slave society, was a slave society. The same in the Caribbean islands where sugarcane plantations, um, you know, a place like Haiti where the survival rate, you know, the, the, the whole slave population had to be replaced every three or four years, it's estimated, because it was so brutal. Really? Um, that uh, slaves didn't survive. And that's also the case, of course, in Brazil, in parts of, you know, South and uh, Southern Latin America with big rubber plantations and so on. So there's this plantation complex. That history really informs, you have to say, the subsequent history, the continuing problem of racism. And so then that's a unique component to the U.S. and these other Western hemispheric societies. Then on top of it, um, what makes U.S. Uh, distinct and special, I think, in its history is that that settler colonial indigenous and enslavement uh, kind of components are also followed by a rapid militaristic expansion and warfare um, to be the dominant hegemonic society territorially in North America and to dominate then with its geopolitical uh, kind of projection of this, both into the Pacific and into the Caribbean, and the creation of this geopolitical Monroe Doctrine that, you know, articulated, you know, this position that the United States has to be the kind of superpower of the Western Hemisphere. Of course, that changed after World War II and was incubated, you know, uh, with the idea of... uh, the American century, you know, uh, onto the world. Uh, But that was, you know, sort of why it is that the U.S.'s history is specific and distinctive. And of course, if you talk with uh, Professor Horn, and, you know, we've had him on the show several times, and of course, in Guerrilla History, we've talked about some of his recent books, and we uh, uh, will be releasing maybe next month uh, a conversation uh, about one of his more recent books, um, which is the counter-revolution of 1836 about Texas and um, American fascism, essentially, you know, the roots of American fascism. Um, So when you say, yes, it's like Texas, um, that history is very significant. And of course, Texas has a very unique history um, among all of these states because it was an independent, you know, uh, basically an independent slave settler republic. Um, and, um, you know, his thesis about the counter-revolution, of course, very controversial, uh, uh, suggestion that, uh, you have to look to the American revolution as a counter-revolution, uh, you know, against, uh, abolition of slavery, um, that certainly, Regardless of whether you want to think of the U.S. 1776 in those terms, I think you can't ignore it, that it, 1836 is clearly, right. you know, uh, it, the, the Texas foundation of Texas is as a breakaway settler, new settler republic, you know, where you could, you know, establish uh, white supremacy through, you know, eradicating 
indigenous peoples continue the slave uh, system and also expand uh, westwards um, against, you know, Mexico, which, of course, again, let's remember Mexico during that period outlawed slavery. Uh, so, again, that was seen as a threatening rival that Texas you know, needed to confront because it was very much involved and identified with the transatlantic slave trade in the period where the slave trade was um, being made illegal and outlawed uh, by the British Empire, uh, even by the United States. It's, you know, uh, the transatlantic slave trade was being uh, contested and, and regulated and diminished, if not outlawed, as that, you know, happens in stages. So they were a kind of outlaw republic. Um, and as Professor Horn will 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 tell us, uh, you know, uh, the flag of the Lone Star, uh, well, Republic before it was this uh, the Lone Star State, you know, could be sl- seen in ports, uh, slave ports of places like Angola and so on, because, you know, that was really identified with the persistence of the institution of slavery in the Western Hemisphere. Um, I didn't know that about Spain outlawing. Uh, slavery and how that affected... Well, not Spain, but Mexico. Because again, let's remember Mexico, independent republic. You know, it has its history. There's, you know, you look at the Bolivarian Revolution. Of course, we talked with uh, Professor Harvey J.K. once a little bit about this. I mean, I think it is more complicated than I would say. But one thing that is never or seldom (laughs) mentioned about all of these... um, Bolivarian, uh, you know, nineteen early mid nineteenth century um, uh, revolutions, republican revolutions against the Spanish and the Portuguese and the other old colonial empires, uh, are that they are settler republics, um, breakaway republics that, um, in some ways, want to be free so that they don't have to um, abide by any of the restrictions on wiping out indigenous peoples and, you know, expanding slavery and so on. And when those regulations start to come in, whether it's the British, um, you know, uh, threatening to end the the slave trade or, um, you know, um, making uh, pacts with to allow, uh, you know, the papists up in Quebec in what was Upper Canada to maintain their, you know, uh, you know, papish uh, religion of Catholicism and keep their language, or when treaties and alliances are being made with, uh, you know, uh, indigenous tribes people uh, that had political confederacies um, that could negotiate this on a large scale of alliances with them. Um, and stopping, you know, expansion to the West, then you start to have the settler, uh, the move to settler uh, republics breaking away. And we see that in Latin America as well, that a lot of these planters, you know, want to be free to pursue their, you know, uh, interests uh, without the meddling or paying for, you know, uh, sending taxes and so on. Um, you know, to pay for the wars to protect them. I mean, that's what happened in the U.S. The French, you know, the Seven Years' War in Europe was the French uh, Indian War, as it was called in um, North America. And it was very costly for the British to protect its, you know, uh, settler colonies, the 13 colonies, particularly the Northeast ones. 
And that's why they wanted to impose these taxes, uh, you know, to pay off all of these debts and expenses for, um, you know, their military ventures and protecting these 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 settler uh, uh, colonial states. And, you know, that was resented, didn't want to have to pay for it. Um, so all of these Republican revolutions, um, when you look at it in global historical terms, they, of course, advance these ideas of bourgeois liberty, parliamentary kind of democracy, usually, of course, restricted to major land holders. There's always a property qualification and so on. So it's limited. But, of course, it advances some idea of, um, you know, you know, democratic kinds of institutions against the monarchy. But what are the motivations and the context in which it's happening? It's usually these settler, you know, uh, uh, colonists who want to protect their interests and their interests are vested in a highly unequal, unegalitarian, uh, expansionist frontier society that, you know, wants to wipe out the indigenous peoples, maintain an enslaved population and, and so on. All right, let, let's change uh, the compass and talk about Ukraine and Syria, because I was at the top of the show looking at a map. You're great with maps, and I want to show you. Uh, let me go full screen here. There are 14. This is courtesy of Al Jazeera Creative Commons. There are roughly 14 million refugees who have left mm -hmm. Ukraine. We were told it was 6 million, but you look at these numbers, they got close to 7 million people who left Poland, Ukraine. Yeah. Poland, a million and a half, Hungary, 1.3 million in Romania, 2.8 million going to Russia. When you compare these numbers, 16 million refugees out of a population of 44 million, so that's about almost 20%. I can't do the math here. Close to one, maybe 20. A quarter of the population has left. Wow. The, the, the numbers, when you look at Syria, this is almost three times the number of refugees. Syria is a smaller country. But... What does victory look like in Ukraine when when you have 14 million who had to leave the country, not to mention how how many millions have just been displaced internally from their own homes? Mm -hmm. How does this compare in your estimation to to Syria? Well, the biggest difference, I would say, is that. Um, we haven't heard that much panic about all of these refugees in Poland and Eastern Europe, mm. um, even though the numbers uh, dwarf those of uh, Syrians. I mean, what was it? Uh, the plan uh, under Angela Merkel was to accept up to a million. I don't know if a million ended up arriving to Germany. Um and um, one could say that kind of uh, uh, ushered in the rise of alternative for Deutschland and really, you could say, the end of her government. Like, uh, that was a big decision she made, but within a couple, three but years. But she needed that because the population, 
they have they need to refill their aging population in Germany. Well, of course, I mean, it's a labor. I mean, all of the, you know, historic waves of immigration to places like Germany, whether it was originally, say, in the 50s from Spain, you know, Basque workers and so on to Turks in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, these were to, um, you know, help rebuild after World War II when you had a devastated population and huge reconstruction that was needed to just these demographic changes that you're mentioning of a declining, um, you know, kind of replacement population uh, being produced uh, with a lowered birth rate and an aging population um, generationally. Yeah, so they were moving out of the labor force. They needed, you know, young immigrants to come and work in in factories and work in all kinds of services and so on. Um, that's the reason why it happens. And that's the reason why these policies that encouraged uh, labor migration, you know, existed. However, um, you know, it was very hard to get German citizenship. And um, there was resentment uh, when uh, by the second or third generation, you started to actually have Turks in particular, um, gain German citizenship and become much more integrated into society and culture. And you had a changing German culture. Um, obviously, the Turks in Germany changed and adapted and integrated in various ways, but also uh, German culture uh, enlarged by, you know, gaining you know, new cuisines and, and so on. And like the, the just culture changed because these populations, you know, did mix a lot of intermarriage, various things happened. But, um, you know, as we've seen all over the world, there has always been an anti-immigrant um, uh, kind of politics that was there, was latent. Um, and the Ukrainian, I, I would think the Ukrainians look different than the Syrians. And what would be the religion? Not well. Not, obviously, the, the most of the Syrian refugees. Although let's remember, not Alawites, right? They was, were. Go ahead. But most of the refugees were not Alawites, right? That would be they're small. Yeah, and that's a very small part of the population, yeah. anyway. I mean, most of the population, the majority of the population, are Sunni Muslims. But of course, Syria is a very was you know, has been for, you know, historically a very diverse society with a large uh, Christian population um, uh, across several different uh, denominations, um, uh, Kurds, um, uh, other uh, uh, Muslim groupings like the Druze, who are, of course, also known in other parts of the Levant, whether it's in Lebanon or in um, Israel, Palestine, um, and, you know, so it's it's a pretty diverse uh, country and uh, but the majority are Muslims. And that's certainly how Syrians were thought of and identified. And so Arabic speaking Syrians uh, coming into Europe in smaller numbers were nonetheless seen as a huge threat and a kind of demographic invasion, which is how the right wing characterized this as an intentional attempt to uh, create a Eurabia. Um, and um, and this gave rise. To, Orban has been there for ten years. Syria, 
Is yeah, happening. and it's been almost about 10 years since um, the Syrian refugee crisis reached its height. I think that was really sort of 2012 through 14 was really sort of the height of the right. refugee crisis. And he you know, rose to prominence uh, principally, or at least consolidated his dominance over Hungarian politics through an extreme far-right uh, kind of uh, nationalism, an ultra-nationalism that demonized... Um, uh, and refused to obey EU kind of refugee and humanitarian law. Let's let's you know be clear about that. Um, uh, while also trafficking in these kind of anti-Semitic uh, condemnations of uh, former uh, Hungary national. Um, uh, uh, why why is he, the name escaping me? Um, Fide Fide the party. No no uh, the. Um, the um, George Soros. Oh, right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and and he sort of Orban and Hungarian far right politics really crystallizes this for subsequent far right uh, movements around the world. They sort of follow this kind of idea that the um, that uh, Soros and organizations like the Hebrew um, uh, uh Hayas, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, um, are coordinating and organizing through their transnational and global and globalist uh, connections of NGOs and all this other kind of stuff, this, you know, invasion of the Arab and the Muslim. And so you get, again, this sort of uh, idea of the nefarious collaboration of the global network of Jews with uh, this um, counter-civilizational entity of the world of Islam as the two enemies, you know, that are collaborating with one another against, um, you know, Western European identity and values. Um, so ironically, um, you know, uh, I don't think as many refugees came, certainly not nearly as many as the Ukrainians. If those numbers are accurate, we're talking about a much smaller group. Um, and yet, because there seem to be cultural and religious and ethno-national and racial similarities, although I would dispute you know, how accurate that is uh, uh, fundamentally, uh, this idea that, well, this is happening to Europe and Europeans, even though, you know, Ukraine was always a kind of disputed border frontier zone between Europe and Asia, uh, between Western European or European kind of the European world. Um, but because they, you know, they're Christians um, uh, and, um, you know, it was even obvious in a lot of the news reporting, you know, that uh, this these are people being made refugees and they look like us. Yes. They don't look like yes. those like Iraqis. And, right. you know, this isn't right. Iraq or Afghanistan. How could this be right. happening? And right. our sympathies are engaged, um, you know, rather than our fears. And it, that was the opposite case. I mean, to some extent, there would be, you know, some sense of empathy, but it was seen as endemic and kind of natural to the Middle East that those countries are going to be in turmoil and suffering war, even though, of course, the reason why they're suffering war in many cases has to do particularly with, say, Iraq and Afghanistan with U.S. invasions. We've never taken responsibility for the creation of the refugee crisis in that period. 
But because those victims of U.S. empire and of the destabilization of, of states in the Middle East are Muslim, you know, Arabs, uh, they're not seen as worthy victims. But the Ukrainians um, who are suffering, you know, mightily, uh, you know, look at the situation. I mean, if you have that many people fleeing war-torn Ukraine and the Russian invasion, we should, of course, have sympathy. But it is remarkable that there's very little of the same kind of consternation um, that uh, we saw about um, uh, you know Syrian refugees to the extent that uh, they tried to pay you know Erdogan you know you know there are two to three million came to 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 Turkey right Turkey hosted like three million Syrians during the height of the refugee crisis. Um, and so what they decided to do really was to send billions of dollars in aid to Turkey, or actually we should say Turkey now, because I've, I've forgotten that they've changed their name in um, at the UN now they're to be known as Turkey officially. And we're not supposed to say Turkey, but uh, Turkey, you know, was paid, uh, you know, some billions of dollars basically to put a break on um uh, you know, uh, the refugee flow. Um, but there have been subsequently all kinds of allegations that he's, you know, sometimes turning on the tap and letting, you know, refugees come mm -hmm. in, you know, come in as a kind of tool of policy to uh, destabilize Greece or other, you know, others when he has a geopolitical purpose. Um, and of course, also this zone that he's, uh, that Erdogan has created um, well, that the Turkish uh, government has created in northern Syria has been a site for a resettlement of uh, of Syrians. So it's thought up to, you know, 500,000 to a million maybe have been or are planned to be uh, returned, as it were, to Syria, but not just sent to go into Syria back to their homes, but into this zone of about five miles some in some places it's alleged that turkish control extends to 18 miles beyond the border uh which you know he argues will be a kind of you know pro uh turkey anti-kurdish uh kind of insurgent and anti-isis force there um to kind of protect turkey's interests um and it's a very interesting situation, uh, actually, um, that Turkey is is itself suffering under what we might call some anti-migrant, anti-refugee sentiment. And elections, of course, are coming up next year. And, you know, Turkish society is, is kind of nervous about, you know, the fact that they've had three million, you know, uh, Syrian refugees in their country for the last decade. And some, he's particularly in, in a, a coalition government with the ultranationalist Turkish party. Really, these guys are really fascistic. Uh, they used to be called like the Grey Wolves, the 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 uh, MHP MHP party, and um, I think that has resulted in um, having to accommodate some of this, you know, ultranationalist anti-refugee. Uh, sentiment even in Turkey. Great. We have to wrap it up because Peter B. Collins has a hard out. Who is on the Mudgeless podcast this week? Well, 
uh, on the March List <clears throat> podcast. In just a day or two, we will have uh, the release of my conversation with uh, Dr. Jean uh, Bajalan, um, the modern Middle East historian, to talk about the Kurdish dimension uh, of the protests in Iran and how you can't understand them outside of the Kurdish question uh, in Iran. And on uh, Guerrilla History this uh, Friday, um, I think uh, we'll be dropping a uh, discussion that we had with Michael Fox, who is uh, the maker of a podcast series called Brazil on Fire and is an independent journalist there, previewing the emerge well, the, the elections and also uh, the rise of Bolsonaro and, you know, why this kind of fascistic uh, uh, orientation in Brazilian politics has proven um, so perduring and uh, significant ahead of this uh, second round of the Brazilian elections. Yeah, it's pretty scary. What's Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Professor Adnan Thank you. Hussein. Thank you so much. Let us now go to San Rafael, to the Bay Area, San Francisco, where Peter B. Collins is standing by. Very quickly, tell us about Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. Rahima is the nonprofit that was established by Professor Adnan Hussein's family. They're located in San Jose in the South Bay, and they service uh, immigrant and refugee communities. And it's a great organization that provides uh, food and food services, including uh, the, uh, you know, special kinds of food that uh, uh, Muslims are, are fond of or, uh, you know, that are part of their traditional diets. So it is a remarkable organization. Uh, I've become a supporter of theirs, and I encourage all listeners and viewers of the Feldman Show to go to Rahima.org, learn more about the organization, and if you're so inclined, you can become a supporter too. And you'll feel better. Yeah, and David, before we jump into my segment, if Professor Hussein is still on the uh, Zoom call, I wanted to ask him to comment on uh, President Erdogan's uh, threats against Greece that were delivered in a tirade at a, uh, an international confab last week. There were some 40 leaders who had gathered, and uh, gosh, I hope that phone call didn't... Uh, interrupt my zoom uh feed to you uh, no, you're still here good still okay here, yeah. so adnan uh could you tell us what you think is this a, a stunt that erdogan pulled uh for domestic political consumption because he's facing re-election himself uh it, you know in his tirade he basically threatened to invade greece uh and this i believe stems from conflicts over cyprus and other islands in the uh, eastern Mediterranean. But uh, beyond what I read in the New York Times yesterday, I don't know a lot. Well, I mean, of course, there's been historic conflict. Greece was part of the Ottoman Empire for many hundreds of years. It gained its independence in the early 19th century with a kind of revolt and revolution. It has, you know, subsequently been a kind of rival of... Uh, the Ottomans and then later the, uh, you know, uh, the Turkish Republic, they, you know, fought a 
war. Um, well, they've had a period where they had to uh, kind of there was an expulsion, a kind of mutually arranged expulsion of their minorities. Turks who were in still in the Balkans and particularly in Greece had to be sent uh, to Turkey. And, you know, um, likewise, uh, uh, Turkish speaking in many cases, but also Greek speaking uh, people from the Anatolian Peninsula were you know, sent to 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 Greece. Um, they fought a war over Cyprus, as you point out. Um, and Turkey occupies the northern part of the island, and it's not recognized as an independent country. It's not recognized by anybody except Turkey. It used to be that Pakistan was the only other country that recognized. I, my father's from Pakistan. My mother's from Turkey. So I was. You know, from Ooh. the two places that recognized <laughs> Cypriot, Northern Cyprus. But more recently, um, you know, they had actually earlier in this last year, they'd been having a number of uh, what seemed like productive and profitable discussions trying to resolve a number of issues um, between the Greek prime minister and Erdogan. I'm forgetting his name. It's Mitz. Uh, Starts with an M, apologies. Um, but uh, he gave a speech, the Greek prime minister gave a speech, I think in February or March in at the U.S. Congress, and basically was decrying, um, and this is after they were having these, these conversations, decrying um, military sales to Turkey. Um, um, Erdogan thought this was an absolute betrayal of the, you know, process that they were undergoing and said, uh, really lost his temper then and said, we're not going to, I'll never speak with him again. And subsequently there has ratcheted up um, revival of uh, contestation over many of the islands in the Aegean, um, some of which are, you know, considered Greek and they're very close to the Turkish mm -hmm. coast on the Aegean to the extent that they infringe on the area that would normally perhaps be territorial waters of Turkey. And so that constantly puts them into conflict. And then recently uh, in 2020 and subsequently, there have been attempts to exploit natural gas resources around some of these islands, also around Cyprus. Um, Greece has decried it. Turkey over the summer released um, uh, promotional videos for tourists to try and uh, realign, you know, people's imagination of the Aegean coast away from it being Greek to Turkish and, and coined this Turk Aegean <laughs> thing in the Europe in Europe and Greece was outraged. How can you call, you know, the, the, you know, uh, it, it the Turk Aegean. So this has been simmering and it, it, it really has been a conflict uh, that is uh, heated up after the March uh, statement by the Greek prime minister. So this latest explosion is just continuing that they keep escalating over the last like several months. They've continued to keep escalating uh, this conflict. I don't know if he's doing it just for Erdogan's position is not just for uh, uh, Turkish, uh, internal Turkish political you know, consumption politically. The elections mm -hmm. are still some way off June next year perhaps, um, but uh, it never seems to play badly to in sort of Turkish nationalist circles to demonize Greece, which, um, you know, they just have this history of, of, of conflict when, in fact, of course, that very same Turk Aegean video promoting Turkey, Turkey to tourists shows that they share similar music, similar cuisine, similar 
culture. Um, most of who we think of as Turks are actually Greeks who ended up learning Turkish over the course of centuries. I mean, the Greek peasantry of Anatolia is the Greek peasantry. Some of them stayed Orthodox Christian and kept uh, Greek and others, you know, Turkified and adopted Islam and, you know, Turkish language. And now they're Turks. I mean, but ethnically, culturally, in so many other ways, they actually, you know, share uh, uh, mm -hmm. history. So that's yeah. my take on it. Yeah. Well, thanks for your comments. I'm and, and sorry watching into that. Your, into your segment. No, I brought it on. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. So David, let me ask you uh, about KGO. I want to... Let me ask you about well, Kate. I just want to acknowledge that a listener and a regular of the Feldman podcast who uses the handle Senior Brainwash yes. uh, asked me to talk about today's topic. Good. Uh, by the way, thank you for Rusty Schweigert. I It only went an extra four hours after you were gone. I, <laughs> I want to, I wonder if he'll come back to talk with Professor, he and Professor Marianne Cummings were fascinating together mm -hmm. it was I yeah they were doing a beautiful duet yep yep so i want to uh have to send him a uh a thank you note and the highlight of course was when he was trying to share his screen and i got to say don't panic rusty <laughs> my, thank you for that thank you for for a once in a lifetime opportunity to tell an apollo astronaut not to panic kgo i'm from san francisco kgo was a fire torch of a radio station. What was it, 50,000 watts? You could hear it? Yeah, with a directional signal, uh, the towers are close to the bay, so it propagates the signal fabulously uh, straight up and down the West Coast. So and uh, I worked at KGO twice. Uh, I was never a full-timer. I like to stress that I don't consider myself any kind of a central player at KGO over the years in its talk format, there were perhaps a hundred or more of us who sat behind a microphone at KGO. Uh, but I really enjoyed working the late night and all night shifts because we got calls from Canada and Mexico and every place in between. And it was, uh, you know, in, at its peak, uh, the top radio station you know, according to the ratings in the Bay Area for some 32 years. So uh, 10 days ago, when the current owners who have recently emerged from bankruptcy uh, announced uh, it, it, it was a real insulting way that they did it. Uh, I've been through radio station format changes, and it's never pretty. Uh, a number of the opportunities that opened up for me were at the expense of people who got fired. And that is just an ugly reality of the radio business. But Mark Thompson, who had replaced the longtime uh, veteran host there, Ron Owens, in the 10 to noon slot, the, the suits, I, I guess they just were not organized, but they allowed him to start his show. And he talked for about a minute and a half and you could tell that his earbud was uh, <laughs> activated and somebody from Master Control said, throw it back to us. Now, he wasn't expecting that. He had just started a segment and he dutifully said, OK, uh, this is KGO San Francisco. Uh, 
So his feed, and, and Mark Thompson was originating his show from his home in L.A., uh, and Thompson has a history in the market. He was a comic weatherman. He had a show on Sirius Satellite Radio for a while. And, uh, you know, he, he has a following. He is a true personality. So uh, anyway, there was dead air for about 12 to 15 seconds. And then a promo, uh, a promo loop was heard with a, a series of snippets from music related to gambling and money and winning. And it teased that uh, the following Monday, they were launching a new format that is all focused on sports betting. Now, this is, this is the nichiest niche format <laughs> I have ever seen. But it's where the money, this is the new evil money. Sports, go ahead. Well, let, let me explain just in general terms that there are two ways to program a radio station. The vast majority of stations are programmed for the general public. They're intended to show an audience in the ratings. Those ratings are then used to uh, gauge what the rates are for advertising. Then they sell advertising, and they hope to make more money from the ads than they pay out to talent and engineers and producers and the electric bill to keep a radio station on the air. The second way to do it is called brokered programming. That's where the radio station sells blocks of time. And my first introduction to this was in Chicago, where I was on the FM station, and the AM station in the next studio was uh, had a different show in a different language every hour. And those hosts paid the management uh, a fee to host their own show, and then they were able to sell commercials and pocket 100% of that money themselves. And if they could hustle, these stations don't get ratings because there's no consistent audience that, you know, changed every hour. So uh, that really is the fundamental of the infomercial. And infomercials really started on television to fill up blocks of time on UHF stations that found it more profitable to do that than to run a 40-year-old movie. So... Uh, the time brokerage model is what Cumulus is now using. And a friend on Facebook uh, dug up an article from the summer of 2021 from a radio trade publication that announced that Cumulus had uh, made a long-term deal with the Steve Wynn Casino Group in Las Vegas. So... I'm putting things together here. I don't have any insider information. I haven't seen the contracts. But KGO is now featuring a series of what I consider to be infomercials. The shows are nominally about, uh, you know, sports jocks talking about the upcoming game and what the spread's going to be and what line you're going to take. Uh, but the whole focus of it is to encourage people to make book. <laughs> so uh, there's another bizarre angle here that currently there are two measures on the November ballot in California that would expand 
uh, sports betting and it would allow sports betting at racetracks. I guess that's on track betting. <laughs> <laughs> but you could bet, you you know, Pete Rose could go to a racetrack, River Downs in Cincinnati, and bet on baseball. Right. Uh, so the, the, these two ballot measures are nominally promoted by Native American gaming tribes here in California. But one of them is clearly written to benefit the, the mega casino operators based in Las Vegas. And you may know that Indian gaming is often run by subsidiaries of big casino companies from Las Vegas. And the tribes get the profits. They pay a, a management fee to exactly. the casinos. Mm -hmm. So at, at KGO, from you know everything that I can deduce, uh, Steve Wynn and perhaps other casino operators are buying blocks of time. And the radio station laid off everybody, okay? Not just the hosts that are known to the public, but the producers and the board operators, the technicians. Because this radio station will be run at almost zero cost. I mean, the utility bill is going to be their biggest expense. And the money that they make from selling blocks of time to the casino interests is how they're going to make their money. So the new KGO doesn't need ratings. It doesn't even really need listeners. <laughs> it will draw flies. It will draw people with a gambling addiction. Right. And the other thing to point out is that Bill Clinton's 1996 telecom deregulation, which allowed companies to buy up not only you know, large numbers of stations nationally, but also to bulk up in an individual market. So Cumulus now is the biggest AM owner in San Francisco. They have right-wing talk on KSFO, which is more profitable than KGO has been for the last 10 years. Uh, they have KGO. They have KNBR, another 50,000-watt station that has the Giants franchise and has been a dominant sports talk station in this market. Then they have a, a fifth station, which is 1050 AM. They, the call letters are something else, but they call it KNBR 1050. And it's where they run syndicated sports shows and uh, they... If, if the Giants have a scheduled conflict with the 49ers, they'll move the 49ers over to 1050. So I point that out because they could have pulled the plug on 1050 and put sports betting there. They could have pulled the plug on 560, the right-wing talk, which is Sean Hannity and uh, those guys. Uh, but they didn't. They chose to blow up the heritage station that was actually improving its ratings over the last nine to 12 months. It was almost tied with KSFO. So I don't know if it was the casino operators who said, you know, we need a big stick that covers the whole region. We wouldn't be satisfied with 1050 or 560. But this essentially silences the last moderate voices in San Francisco talk right. radio. 
there were no flaming liberals left on KGO. Bernie Ward uh, was the last real, uh, you know, considered an extreme leftist on KGO. And he's in prison. And not anymore. He he did five years, and uh, he was convicted of a, a ch- in a child pornography case, which is very sad and truly humiliating to Bernie. Uh, we remain in touch, and I was in contact with him when he was serving his his prison sentence. But uh, Pat Thurston was doing the afternoon, the mid afternoon shift, and she's a, a moderate liberal. John Rothman was doing afternoons. He, again, is a, an Obama Democrat. He has a curious past because he helped Richard Nixon write his memoirs uh, when he was a young man and Nixon had been exiled to San Clemente. And then there was a, a younger woman, Nikki Maduro, uh, doing the, the morning shift. And again, she was a moderate. Uh, and, and so... <laughs> You know, we we now are left with an AM dial here that has uh, God Squad. There are three uh, stations that are owned by the Salem Radio Group that got profiled in the Sunday New York Times. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, Then there is the Cumulus Cluster, uh, CBS, which is now called Odyssey. Uh, they own KCBS, a 50,000-watt all-news station, but they don't have any other AM uh, properties here. And, you know, the, the, the bottom line from a business point of view is that AM radio is dying. The, you know, median age of an AM listener, especially AM talk, is 68 to 70. That's the median <laughs> Okay, and so sports is really the last gas of commercial AM radio, and it's got about five years. The big group owners are uh, now simulcasting their sports talk and news talk stations on an FM station where they've given up. Uh, They used KFOG here, which was a great album rock station Mm -hmm. for decades. That is now KNBR FM, uh, essentially. And so, uh, you know, what we're seeing is the owners are operating these stations in their self-interest. They don't even pay lip service to the public interest anymore. Which they're supposed to do because they're licensed by the government. Well, that is the part of the 1934 Communications Act that has not been repealed, David. <laughs> but and there's pu- nobody and Herbert there. Hoover gave us that. Yes, and there, there's no enforcement at the FCC. Uh, the FCC is like the Federal Elections Commission right now. It does not have a full uh, confirmed uh, 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 complement of commissioners. And so no real action is being taken, uh, except on a few technical issues. So there's no you know, threat of regulatory intervention. All right, so let me, I only have six more minutes with you. So I want to yeah. give me alternative history. Bill Clinton doesn't sign this Telecommunications Act. We stay true to the original mandate of radio, which is supposed to serve each local community. That uh, what would have happened if local radio stations could not be bought up by Viacom and Clear Channel. And they were Mm -hmm. 
primarily locally owned. Would this be a dying medium today? Yes, the state of the regulatory environment in 96 was that the maximum ownership limit was 12 a.m., 12 FM. And so it would have prevented the kind of uh, extreme consolidation that occurred. But we, we do have to look at how uh, commercial radio has poisoned the, the well uh, by playing too many commercials and playing the same music on FM stations over and over again. Once streaming arrived and iTunes and satellite radio, people had other options. And so listening to both AM and FM has declined sharply uh, in the last 10 years. The other factor that I like to mention is that uh, 2005 is when uh, the first iPod was, uh, well, I guess the iPod was a little sooner, but the iPhone was about 2005. 2007. And Steve, Steve, oh, thank you. Okay, Steve Jobs refused to put a radio chip for either FM or AM and FM on the iPhone. And that stole news and traffic as reasons for people to tune in to their local, uh, particularly AM station. And so once you could get that on your phone and your phone didn't have radio, terrestrial radio, uh, it really hastened the, the tailspin that commercial radio has been in. You know, I have my mother's car. I haven't had a, I haven't driven a car in 10 years. I'm in New York, so I'm keeping my mother's car. And what you can do, this is your phone through Bluetooth can play podcasts. Yes. My God. It's, I know I, I, that's all I do is a podcast, but I have, I haven't listened to a podcast in a car for close to a decade. And it's phenomenal. Oh my God. No wonder people listen to this and there's no commercial. It's, it's even easier in a Tesla because uh, you can access uh, the Internet and then pick up podcasts from, you know, all of the podcast outlets. Wow. And you don't even need to use your phone or Bluetooth there. Wow. We have three minutes left with you. Radio in 10 years gone is it going to be like vinyl where young people will rediscover it and it'll be there'll be a renaissance, I hope. Most of these radio, Claire Channel, I thought was just broke in debt, right? Well, they're they're overwhelmed with debt. They changed the name to iHeart and Bain Capital uh, uh, pulled away from them. Uh they they're surviving because of the concert business that they bought live nation is what they call it and their billboards uh clear channel iheart owns a lot of billboards uh the they they've worked very hard to you know develop podcasts and streaming online there's a whole iheart app uh that is fairly popular that people use to well, you know what? The, the, did you see the story in Bloomberg? I don't they're think so. they're manufacturing the numbers. They're, they're, they hook them up to. There's a way to trick people into listening to a podcast for thirty seconds. 
it's through gaming devices. I'll send you the story. And you can add hundreds of thousands of uh, re- listens. It, it looks like you've had... Because I think of, I listen, I see what's number one. And you go, really? Yeah, is anybody really going to listen to that? They're manufacturing listens. Well, the, the data collection for podcasts is squirrely. Because uh, Facebook's rule is that if somebody listens to, I think, 10 seconds of uh, anything, uh, it is logged as somebody having listened to the whole thing, whether it's a minute long or an hour long. And likewise, uh, you know, notorious and highly popular people like Joe Rogan, they get a lot of automatic downloads because people go to a podcast service, they subscribe. Every show gets downloaded, but is it ever listened to? And if so, uh, you know, how much do people listen to? And Spreaker and Stitcher, they actually give the producer reports on how many people listened and how far into the show they listened, which is much more valuable than these just, you know, broad download numbers. Yeah. Well, you have to go. I think the secret is to have a a small but loyal audience and de- deliver what they want. Mm-hmm. And then you're not at the mercy of bots uh, jacking up numbers and living a, living a lie, living a fiction, which so much right. of show business is. Um, Peter B. Collins is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer, and you can see his uh, or listen to his interviews, his podcasts, his radio shows by going to peterbcollins.com. You have dinner? Are you going off to dinner? Yes, I have uh, I have an appointment. Enjoy. <laughs> it's rare. It's rare on a Monday night, but uh, we're going to go have some fun. And thank you once again for Rusty Schweikert. I appreciate it. And I, I will ask him to come back, but he, I, I watched the end of the uh the the tango with uh, MAC and Rusty Schweikert, and you asked him, so how can people get in touch with you? And he said, don't. <laughs> right, but I don't, I, I'm, you know, somebody else mentioned that, but he, he was, very, that was, he didn't want to be contacted in general, but I don't right. think he, I don't think, believe me, nobody is more uh, self-loathing than I am, but I don't think that was his way of saying don't contact me. No, I, I will invite him back, but I'll give him a break for a month or two. Okay. Thank you, Peter B. Okay. Collins. Thank You're you. welcome, David. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where particle physicist Mary Ann Cummings, Professor Mary Ann Cummings, joins us. And she is the Parks Commissioner, a Parks, elected Parks Commissioner of uh, Aurora, twice. Illinois, twice. When are you up for re-election? Oh, not for another three years. And are we looking? I started another uh, four-year term this year. So. And let's review, because we're how many weeks away from, what are we, like two weeks away? People are already uh, voting. I think it's more like three weeks away. So. Because I think it's uh, November 8th. For some reason, I always thought it was the second Tuesday but I think it's except if, you know, if the second or the first Tuesday of November. But I think it's 
except if to that Tuesday is the first of November, then it's the eighth of November. Right. Maybe it's in the Constitution. I don't know. This shouldn't be this hard. I know the de- I know the Democrats. Believe me, we I know how bad the Democrats are, but it shouldn't be this hard. For so the it's Dem- hard to for vote? the Democrats to keep the House and the Senate. As bad as they are, it it should not be this difficult. Raphael Warnick should not be in jeopardy of losing to Herschel Walker. Well, you know, uh, that depends on where you're sitting, you know, where you're sitting. If you're sitting in a relatively comfortable middle class life. uh, Yeah. I mean, like, what's with these peasants who got nothing and who are losing everything? Why don't you vote for our guy? He sounds nicer to us, uh, you know. But Herschel Uh, Walker says in the last debate or the one before he didn't show up, he wants to get rid of the minimum wage. I mean. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know, the, the thing is, is that uh, the minimum wage is nonsense anyway right now because it's still seven dollars and twenty five cents. Um, you know, his saying that kind of doesn't mean anything. And I think voters are actually kind of savvy enough to know that neither the Democrats nor the Republicans really care it's all a play. They only the Democrats only pretend to care. I mean, I swear they to did God, get rid of, they've I, I gotten one re- more phone call asking for money. I know because of Roe v. Wade. And I said, well, why aren't you in you? You've got the House and the Senate. Why aren't you right now in Washington over, you know, codifying it into law? Oh, we need two more senators. What do you mean you need two more senators? If you're not going to be willing to give up the filibuster, you're going to need like 12 more senators, but you're not willing to sit and fight and make it an issue and force it to be an issue because it is just too damn good as a fundraiser. It's too precious as a as a campaign fundraising issue or election fundraising issue to uh, to ever solve. Kind of like I never thought that the Republicans would ever themselves cut it you know, uh, make a law against outlawing outright outlawing abortion for pretty much the same reason because that thing always played like a trained seal for them, you know. And um, so you get a Supreme Court and you get a couple genuine crazies uh, <laughs> that aren't following the rules. I don't think I think that um, even John Roberts, I believe, did not vote to outright overturn Roe v. Wade because he knows how crappy his. His legacy is going to be if things keep on like they are, I mean, already. So, uh, you know, look, the Democrats are so freaking lazy. They instead is what Harvey J.K. has been urging them to do, you know, start going back to their roots, getting coalitions of real, you know, the old fashioned farm labor coalitions, the kind of thing that Bernie Sanders was trying to do, but they won't do it. Because they want to crush, and not only do they will they not do it, they've actively crushed the part of their party that was advocating for the type of things that would get them elected, reelected in perpetuity. I mean, how many t- times do you think Roosevelt would have been reelected if he had been healthy after at the end of the war? I mean, we once upon a time did have a president for life. Right. And why? 
because he would have continued with the economic bill of rights. He would have, you know, he was that kind of leader. Um, yeah, well, you know, that he was so popular and that was so popular that the Republicans, when they did have the odd year when they were in charge, had to make, you know, an amendment to the Constitution to limit so that no one would ever get that popular again. Because right now, you know, there's no permanent Republican coalition. There's no permanent Democratic coalition because they ping back and forth because neither party delivers for the majority of the people. And I think the owners like it that way, because as Noam Chomsky says, you know, there is this very tiny, narrow, uh, uh, narrow purview of politics that we can argue over. And the arguments are fierce in that very, very tiny, narrowly allowed Mm -hmm. um, field of discussion. And that's fine, because then you have the illusion that you have a robust democracy when you've just got two parties who are as I've said before many times, the good cops, bad cops of the same owners. Or, you know, there's another analogy involving professional wrestling. So, <laughs> so. a month from now, right? November 17th, the election will be over. You're mm. going to, you won't be as depressed as I will. If, no, that, that that is probably true. Because I'm, I none of you are depressed as I've been since age seven. So it's like, <laughs> I've, I've I've got a a baseline. Um, so I'm you know I'm kind of I, I'm adopt. I mean I'm a very highly functional monodepressant person. And so all right, but so let's say we lose the house, mm -hmm. and we deserve it. We lose. The Senate, uh, we deserve it, but not really. Not well. Really. Who's we? I well, mean, the I people in my neighborhood will not deserve it, but they right. don't deserve what they're getting or not getting right now. So you know. So what happens for the next two years? It's Hunter Biden. It's looking into <laughs> every possible oh. scandal. The FBI. They find graft in all these spending bills. Is that but well? I mean, things never, things, things never go the way people plan them to do. As a matter of fact, you know, Mitch McConnell is obviously not a fan of the uh, Trump wing of the. No, he is not of the Republican Party. And the Democrats are the biggest bolsters of Trump because, you know, they think that he's the guy that they can easily beat again. Um, right now, I'm not so concerned about that. I don't have a whole lot of time for um, for working on campaigns, but I am working on two. And one of them is Rachel Ventura, mm -hmm. who's been on the show, and she's running for state Senate. And she's probably going to win, but she's getting no money from the Democratic Party. And we're not quite sure how Democratic or Republican this new district is. Uh, we're pretty confident that she's going to win, but we're not taking any chances with that. So on, on, on mostly volunteers with no paid campaign manager, <laughs> she's uh, maybe John Lash will volunteer if, he's, uh, if his work, his gig at the nuclear power plant is done. Um, they, um, 
you know, the, we just go out door to door. We put up signs. I have, um, I have, and what will happen the next two years is that she'll get in and she will join 12 other progressives in the Senate who are definitely uh, determined to overturn the Mike Madigan legacy in the, in Springfield. So these are people who are more than willing. And, to, and Mike Madigan was the speaker. of. He was the speaker of the House for years and years and just run and ran a completely corrupt party. Um, and, you know, the uh, I think what eventually brought him down with some sexual harassment scandal, except that that ComEd scandal was like in, I, he, why people aren't in prison over that. It's just maybe just because it's Illinois. But that was just such blatant. You know, we, we pay the highest rates, utility rates in, in, in the country because Mike Madison, Mike Madigan's guys, like over 100 and gals, over 100 of them have gotten jobs with ComEd. Many of them paid jobs that they never showed up to. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it, it was just scandalous and, and, and just how blatant, and how, it's more than just Madigan. I mean, how, this, how bad the system is, is that it's something Trump. that blatant? It's Trump. It's oh, yeah, yeah, right. right? Yeah, Trump. <laughs> well, I mean, it's city politics. It's local. Po Trump brought local politics to Washington, D.C. Trump didn't come to Illinois. To, I don't think, you know, even, even though there's that. No, no, I'm, I, no, no, I'm saying that the corruption is so blatant in local politics. Now, but the corruption has been blatant in the state of Illinois ever since I was a graduate student, an undergraduate coming to work at Fermilab, you know, you just read the papers and like clockwork. I mean, some city, uh, some city official, usually an alderman was got popped by the Fed on serious corruption and grab charges. And it just happened. It's, it's happened just a few years ago. Edmund Burke, who was a venerable guy, it turns out that he's just just running um, a kickback ring out of his office uh, Tony Pertwinkle, Pertwinkle, who was uh, the head of the Cook County Board, who should have really been the mayor. And she and Lori Lightfoot, I mean, that's a whole other story. But um, Bill Daly was running a scam where he had a whole bunch of people run so that, of course, he would, in a field of like 15, he'd get the most votes. <laughs> Turns out he was number six and two black ladies you know, became one and two and they were in the runoff. This was like about four years ago. Yeah. Three years wow. ago, four years ago. So anyway, the, my point is, is that there's going to be plenty that a lot of us are going to be working on locally to defeat the system. And I'm, I'm telling people, and then in a few years, I mean, Rachel can just run for U S Senate. I mean, there'll be, she'll have all the credentials in the world mm -hmm. and she'll know how to take on a corrupt system and because she's already done it on Will County board, she's, you know, she's fearless. She will be working her heart out in Springfield and she is going to change things down there. I'm, I'm convinced if anyone is going to. So that's that. And uh, in the spring, what I'm also doing is getting signatures for John Lash. She's going to run at, for uh, Alderman at large in the city of Aurora. And By the way, Aurora is the second largest city in Illinois. 
And uh, he lost last year and uh, to, to Richard Irwin. And uh, ooh, uh, the attitude toward the mayor this year is a lot different than it was a year ago <laughs> because people were backing. Basically, the Democratic organizations here were backing the two Republicans running. Now, the mayoral race is not, you know, it's not partisan, but everybody, of course, knows you know, who everybody is. And uh, they were backing uh, the two Republicans, uh, notably the mayor at the time. Now, everyone thought that, oh, no, he's really a Democrat and blah, blah, blah. And then he runs for governor almost immediately after he is reelected. He is uh, launching his campaign for governor and is running ads that would make Mike, that would old Overweiss. There was a um, guy by the name of Overweiss who was running for Senate and then House. He's now a state senator. But his ads were so fascistic looking that even the Republican Party were were trying to disown this this guy. And uh, and Urban's ads were, I mean, he was basically, I took on the thugs that were trying to take down the city of Aurora. And he's showing clips of the Black Lives Matter protests, Mm -hmm. the protests that my um, progressives of Kane County helped organize. I mean, he was... It's amazing how BLM... Yeah. The the lie that BLM was violent. There's just no evidence whatsoever. No, there wasn't. And this is what was frustrating me so much because the actual uh, BLM... Marches were very, very peaceful, were very nonviolent, were nonviolent to their core. Unfortunately, many of them were accompanied by these people who called themselves Antifa. And this happened in Aurora. And, you know, I witnessed it happening. And it was just they they were kids dressed in black who called themselves Antifa, but started, you know, destroying businesses, lighting stuff on fire. There was a girl from the the town just down the river who set the cop car on fire. When the police were intimidating and surrounding the incredibly peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters, they were just letting these people run amok. Mm -hmm. And then they were blaming this. on Well, the Black Lives Matter, you know, it was there. There were many that were, you know, turned violent. I think the messaging from the left was terrible on that. I mean, many people were apologizing for the violence, going, well, people are frustrated. I'm going, people are frustrated because we didn't do it. The people who were with Black Lives Matter were not the people who were lighting Uh, cop cars on fire. The Washington Post, I've talked about this like three times in the past two years, and it bears repeating. The Washington Post did reporting on this. They said mm-hmm. the BLM protests were all peaceful. It only turned violent when the cops showed up, who hmm. the cops became violent. And any oh, well, yes. any looting, any trash cans that got lit on fire, exactly what you just said. Agent yeah. provocateurs, people who the people who set fire to the precinct where Derek Chauvin worked in Minneapolis. It was some white blonde kid. It was not BLM. And the lie that Fox News and the Republicans repeat over and over again about the rioting Mm -hmm. of of BLM, 
They've they've lied so constantly about it that the Democrats have just given up and and have accepted mm -hmm. it to be the truth. You can't you can't. Well, it, they weren't helped by many people on the left who were apologizing for or they're making excuses for this. And many people were the actual activists were telling them this isn't us at all. Our media, our, our movement was inherently peaceful. Kyle but Rittenhouse was not a BLM member, if, if memory serves. No, but the thing is, he was he was driven down the third night of the riots by a friend, by the friend who basically was charged because his friend, you know, when and the and the uh, actually it was my reading the transcripts of his as testimony at the trial that kind of made clear exactly what happened. But it was kind of funny to watch the actual videos. You saw. Black, everybody was uh, around. I mean, there wasn't a there wasn't a minute or second of that entire night that wasn't on somebody's um, right. cell phone or many many people's cell phone. But you saw a lot of people commenting, "Oh yeah, those 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 Antifa what boys?" Where they were referring to the people who actually started chasing uh, uh, Rittenhouse and people who are throwing firebombs and who were lighting cars on fire and, and and they knew who these guys were these these white boys they kept you know referring to them as the people which was sad i mean this is but this was the problem we had i mean they focused on these people who were lighting cars up and what they didn't what we didn't hear about much was the like 1,000, 1,500 people that earlier in the evening were just peacefully protesting and having candlelight visuals and mm -hmm. nothing happened, you know. But so this is my frustration with the whole thing. But, you know, getting back to the mayor, <laughs> that guy, Richard, well, now people know kind of who he is. Um, he's still in office for at least, a, you know, for three more years. But the midterm, so to speak, for the municipals are going to be next spring. And uh, so I, we are hoping that we can get John in that many people who didn't vote for John for mayor because, hey, Richard's uh, I'm a Democrat. You know, he's promised us all these great things. Well, now Richard has been doing a lot of crappy things. He's been stopped. Um, the latest thing he wants to do is to uh, get the city council to vote $550 million for our downtown casino to relocate near the freeway. Why does that place, why, do, why does, uh, you know, Hollywood in, in Casino Incorporated need $50 million to move a casino anywhere? This is crazy. I mean, we're about to face a severe recession I've got the heat on in my house. It got down to 28 degrees last really? night. Mm -hmm, in Aurora. Yeah, all my basil plants died this weekend. You know, when it hits below freezing, they they just go. So, um, you know, it's going to, and I'll probably get a big sticker shock when I see the price, what my heating bill is going to be. What, what is, and what, what will, what, what are we looking at? Uh, I easily a factor of two increase in the price of gas and most people heat their homes with gas around here um yeah i don't know if, the, if this war was russia and the, and the neocons <laughs> were talking about the war being two-thirds economic and only one-third military well i mean russia's apparently one you haven't defeated russia doing this you've screwed everybody else up with these damn sanctions 
Um, but I know, thought so- of you today in prepping today's show because you've explained how important oil is, whether we like yes. it or not. The amount right. of energy that it can produce that you cannot have our society without oil, whether you like it or not. We have to change mm-hmm. that. And I started looking into how much oil and gas sits underneath Ukraine. It's the second largest gas field in Europe. This is a war partly for oil, partly for gas. Not just the pipelines that go through Ukraine, but it's sitting on top of a lot of oil and gas. That might be the truth. And and let me guess, it's all in the Dumbass region, right? (laughs) It's all in the eastern part. Um, Well, look, you know, um, and the fact that they have a model where U.S. just has to be controlling all the world's resources. I mean, let's even... Somebody was was quoting Madeleine Albright in an article I read about a, a week or two ago where she was at a, a G7 meeting and was talking about how unfair it was that that Russia sits on the world's richest repository of rare earths and minerals and just enormously wealthy in gas and, and, and coal and oil and how unfair that was. <laughs> I'm like, you know... Yeah, if you have a model where it's conquest, where basically the only way we can have a settled world is if one of us, like, wins everything. Um, you know, that, that poem, Osmandius, comes to mind, looking mighty in despair about that statue that's, like, sitting in the middle of the deserts, something like that. Yeah, um, and it's, you know, rather than a world where we develop we we develop sophisticated conflict resolution and diplomacy and and are able as adults to sit down and understand people's real national security concerns and realize that there's a lot of problems we have to solve now obama i did not let biggest disappointment in my life politically however in one sense he was a little slightly better than what came before and after him was that he really wasn't like old Bill, wasn't really interested in war. He and Medvedev, who was the um, prime minister at the time of Russia, although Putin was prime minister during his first uh, during his first term, but you know they actually had a working relationship, and Medvedev convinced him, you know, to not be setting up missiles in Poland. Into Russia. Well, they were nominally going to be taking out Iranian long uh, intermediate range nuclear missiles. And, uh, you know, Medvedev convinced him, well, you know, that is seen as a rather bit of a provocation. You know, what did you guys do when Cuba had those missiles down there? So, you know, it wasn't like we were friends, but when apparently what I also read was that there was some cooperation between U.S. forces and Russians in Syria in 2014. Now, somebody in the State Department spiked that. America America and Obama in Syria, uh, Putin and Obama, they, they, they were going to get rid of the gas. Putin was going to take the nerve gas. Well, they they actually did. You know, remember Obama said that that there was this red line that they weren't supposed to cross and nominally did, except even at the time, 
there was the um, that but supposedly the story was that Assad attacked his own people with gas that had been, you know, that that which has been internationally outlawed. And even I said at the time, and I wasn't even paying much attention to Syria going, now, why would Assad, why would somebody do that? That makes no sense, you know, because that would incur the world's wrath, official wrath in you. And it turned out uh, it's so like people were really um, pushing Obama to be much more forceful in in Syria and send the troops in. He held off because he apparently got the report that was uh, a study headed by Theater Postal at MIT. And his and, and his group had looked at the evidence at the forensic evidence. Says, no, th- th- this wasn't a shelling. You know, somebody on the ground did this. And by the way, this is the kind of gas that we know the rebels have. So there was a big diplomatic, you know, so so what happened was that I think it was Medvedev at that point actually helped Obama save face because he helped broker this deal where Assad got rid of all the rest of their stored chemical weapons, if you remember. And I think this was early 2014, but I would have to check on that. So my whole point here is that we know how, and there's people who know how to cooperate. We can do this. We can have some serious differences. We can have a lot of, we can have a lot of cultural differences, but we are able to work. I mean, we know how to work with countries that we are otherwise in adversity, have adversity with. We know how to do this. The idea that instead of doing things like Obama and Medvedev did, uh, that we basically try to provoke uh, Russia even further. And by the way, I wanted right before I came on, I was trying to find the link, but I will find it and put it. it there was a website that I was a regular reader of in uh, back in the 2000s during the buildup to the Iraq war. And it was called Moon of Alabama. And it was a great website. I had gotten out of the habit of reading it, but recently did. And I was going, they had a link to their site. By the way, this guy Bernard runs it. No one quite knows who he is. There are some bloggers who claim they know who he is. He wants to keep anonymous. But uh, the stuff is usually very well sourced. And uh, there was a link to their site, their their blog from February 22nd, two days of this year, two days before the um, the invasion. And it was astounding. And I would have been much better informed person if I had read that because they did. The only thing I had noted right before was that, well, you know, the the Duma, the Russian Duma did vote after eight years to recognize the Dombe, the independent Donbass provinces which they had held off doing all this time. Well, what's changed? I didn't know. Well, they had noted that, first of all, the sanctions were, the West was already posing sanctions on Russia because they were claiming they're building up for war. Well, what was going on on the other side? Not only was there an enormous buildup of troops on the Western side of Donbass, but the OSCE website, which I had quoted for the monthly um, uh, violations of the minks of the ceasefires in that region, well, the 10 days before 
they, I mean, they and they had links. They had they actually did a daily report that I didn't run across, but Moon of Alabama site had linked every, and saw the increase in um, in missile strikes in in violation of the Minsk Accords for the 10 days, starting with 47 one day, then 200 the next day, then 400, then 500, then 1,000, then 2,000 over the weekend. And that was the last day, uh, the, uh, February 22nd, and two days later, Russian invaded. And this was all missiles going from the Kiev site into the Dundas. Okay. So what well, I'm saying, I will put the link up for anyone to see, but you know, we only get one side of the story, and it's it, it it is distressing how credulous people are about the pro-war side of the story. Well, most Americans, we have to wrap it up, but most Americans yep. want peace. They they've been polled. They want it's enough already. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but so why is everyone, including the squad? so gung-ho on supporting this war. And nobody even mentions, I mean, okay, you might take a vote you know, on, uh, on giving weapons to Ukraine. Why isn't anyone on taking to the floor and saying, you know, we, they, everybody knows that there was a, an agreement in place <laughs> in, by the end of March that we, well, Boris Johnson nominally, but he wasn't right. doing anything that we weren't telling him to do, that we spiked. And maybe Putin was absolutely right. They, they came in, they took over a lot of land, but they did it, they came in soft. People criticized him at the time saying that, oh, he was like incompetent, they didn't know what they're doing, but maybe he knew exactly what he was doing. He was hoping for a settlement, which he almost got, but. To be continued. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll see you Thursday, I hope, for the professors yep. and Marianne. Uh, follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. That is correct, right? That's your Twitter feed, correct? Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. We will be back with more. But first, some music from Mike Steinell, who will not be with us tonight. He's not feeling well. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bell novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. 
got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. Sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high speed parallax motor, cause I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket. I get a chill, I'm traveling late. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A fifth of tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender, I'm traveling late. Wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read. Some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A. and my enemies list. Don't forget about my... Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel, who is under the weather today. Feel better. Professor Mike Steinel, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. This Friday, office hours. Please join us. Please join us. Last night, Brazil, their president, they're having elections for president of Brazil, the Trump of the tropics, Brazil President Bolsonaro faced off with former president and Workers' Party candidate Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva in a televised debate. And Lula called Bolsonaro a little dictator, then referred to him as the king of fake news, Bolsonaro, who many fear will not concede if and when he loses the election scheduled for the end of October. He called Lula corrupt, disgusting and a liar and a national disgrace. Lula then accused Bolsonaro of failing to protect 
Brazilians from COVID, being an anti-vaxxer. Lula accused Bolsonaro of promoting dangerous medications to treat the virus, which killed 680,000 Brazilians. I was expecting Bolsonaro to say, you're fired. Well, that's why I'm grateful to live in an advanced liberal democracy like the United States, where our debates are civilized. For example, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is running for re-election. And over the weekend, she debated the Democratic candidate for her House seat, Marcus Flowers. It was substantive, and it offered Georgia voters in the 14th Congressional District an opportunity to make an informed, sober choice on which candidate is best equipped to navigate this country, this country that we all love, to navigate this country through these troubled shores. First up, Marjorie Taylor Greene told us why she is a proud Republican. Democrat Party is the party of child abuse. Okay, that's that's important for people to know if they're if they're going to vote. I'm a single issue voter. Uh, I care more about Medicare for all. But if the Democratic Party is the party of child abuse, I need to take that into consideration when I go to the polls. Continue, Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Why else are you a Republican? What else do the Democrats stand for that you don't appreciate? And genital mutilation of kids. Okay, the Democratic Party is for the genital uh, mutilation of kids. That's important for us to know. Uh, you know, personally, I'm on the fence when it comes to genital mutilation of kids. That's why I'm a Democrat. Uh, but if Democrats uh, are gen mutilating the genitals of kids, uh, it's probably wrong. But you know what? I'd rather not have the government intervening. Uh, okay, what else, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is your problem with the Democrats. It's the party that represents grooming children and sexualizing them in school. Okay, you know what? I'm starting to not like the Democrats. Child abuse, genital mutilation, grooming children and sexualizing them. Why aren't they being arrested? We're, we're, why aren't they all being locked up? Why are, why are we not arresting these these Democrats. But then again, there is the possibility that Marjorie Taylor Greene may be exaggerating a tad. We all do that. I don't know. That's why I'm glad at last night's debate there was a real journalist on the panel to ask Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene where she gets her information. What is your process for fact checking and vetting the things that you say in public? Great question. What is your process? Here was her answer where she draws the curtain back and we get a chance to see where Marjorie Taylor Greene gets all her information. I, the, the things I say in public are the truth and that's why they're so offensive to Democrat activists in the media just like you. I see. So her process is speaking the truth. That's how she gets all her information by listening to herself talk. Fascinating. Unlike these Democratic activists uh, asking the question, they, they listen to others who read books. But Marjorie Taylor Greene gets her facts 
by listening to herself talk. Well, then it was time for each candidate to ask the other candidate a question. Marjorie Taylor Greene was up first. Do you believe in genital mutilation of children under the age of 18? Well, first off, I think we can all agree genital mutilation for people under the age of 18. I'm pretty sure it's wrong. But Marcus Flower, her opponent, refused to even answer that question. He refused to say that he was against genital mutilation for people under the age of 18. He refused. He said he refuses to dignify such a preposterous question. Well, that's what people say when they're pro-genital mutilation for children under the age of 18. So I don't trust Marcus Flower. He's obviously taking a lot of money from big genital mutilation. How much money? How much? How much money does he take in donations from big genital mutilation? He won't answer that question. And then it was time for the bully, Marcus Flower, who supports genital mutilation. It was time for his question. And this was a rude and inappropriate question that one would only expect to come from a candidate who is in the pocket of big genital mutilation. You know, you spent your time in Congress these last couple of years providing aid and comfort to the January 6th insurrectionists. My question for you is, why do you care more about those criminals in jail than you do about the people of our district? How dare he ask that question? Do you know what Marjorie Taylor Greene has gone through, what she went through on January 6th? You cannot accuse me of insurrection. I was a victim of the January 6th riot just as much as any other member of Congress. She was a victim. This poor woman, this poor woman was a victim of January 6th. She didn't go into specifics. She, she won't tell you. She doesn't like playing the sympathy card. She doesn't like being a victim. Uh, she, but I'll say it. I'll tell you what happened. This woman only days before January 6th, was kind enough to give tours of the Capitol to the people who stormed it on January 6th. She not only helped them do reconnaissance work for January 6th, but she lent them maps so they would know whose offices were where, right? And you know what happened after she lent them those maps? Those people were arrested after January 6th, and she never got her maps back. She never got her maps back. But that didn't stop this bully, Marcus Flower, from going for her jugular. Lying about me and you will not defame my character in that manner. Did Joe Biden win the election, Congresswoman Green? Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Absolutely. Marcus. But you pushed a big lie that said he did not win the election. There was and election fraud. you drove those people to the Capitol fraud. on January 6th with your lie. We're going to move on. Josh Rowe, it's election your turn fraud. to ask and my the question has to Marjorie proof of Taylor Green. We have okay. FOIA evidence, me. a proof of election fraud that came out. Excuse me. We're ready to move on to the next okay, question but for he's you. He's not going to accuse me of a crime. Would you like the question? Would one. you like your question? Yes, ma'am, I you. would. Thank you. All right. Thank you. You're a liar, by the way. She always gets the last word. Always gets the last word. Hard to believe her husband recently filed for divorce. Why are men so cruel? Why are men so cruel? Well, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene refused to say Joe Biden won the election. She thinks he stole it. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Republican Herschel Walker debated Democratic Senator Raphael Warnick. That was on Friday. And 246 Republican candidates running in the midterms, all of them say Joe Biden did not win the 2020 presidential election. You cannot get an endorsement from Donald Trump unless you say Joe Biden lost in 2020. Here is Herschel Walker Friday night getting asked whether or not Joe Biden won. Did President Biden defeat former President Donald Trump in 2020? Again, sir, you have 60 seconds. President Biden won and Senator Warnock won. That's the reason I decided to run. Wow. Herschel Walker going against Trump, the man who endorsed him. He 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 went against Trump. Trump has been standing by his side and Herschel Walker turned his back on Donald Trump. He's breaking with Trump orthodoxy and saying Joe Biden won the election in 2020. Herschel Walker, during Friday night's debate, said, I don't care what Donald Trump says. I'm speaking the truth. I'm standing up against this misinformation that's destroying our democracy. Evil only happens when good men remain silent, which might explain why the second debate between Senator Raphael Walker and uh, Raphael Warnick, the second debate between Senator Raphael Warnick and Herschel Walker on Sunday was uh, slightly different. Let's meet the candidates for this debate. Chase Oliver, a libertarian, is a businessman. Raphael Warnock, a Democrat, is the incumbent senator from Georgia. Herschel Walker, a Republican, is a businessman and former professional athlete. Mr. Walker has declined to participate and is represented by an empty podium. That is our show. I want to thank all our guests tonight. They were... Grace Jackson, Professor Ann Lee, Dr. Nancy, Lane Hewitt, Howie Klein, David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein, Peter B. Collins, and Professor Marianne Cummings. Professor Mike Steinell is under the weather. Get better. Our show is produced by Dan Frankenberger as well as Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway. Uh, who am I leaving out here? Uh, Professor Bick, Andy Bick, Professor Bick, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Grace Jackson, Joe in Norway, and Rodrigo. Thank you, Rodrigo. We have two chat rooms going at the same time, one on YouTube and one in our Zoom room. And we have moderators who keep the riffraff out. Those moderators are Autumn Leaves. Thank you. Midi Doctors. Bob Carmody. M. Toussaint. Choking on Ashes. Lexi444. Escout is Taken. Dent F, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and the Invisible Ninja join us Friday night at 8 p.m. 
for office hours. Go to my website to get your link or sign up for my newsletter. It comes out at uh, 6 p.m. on Friday. It includes, it's a great newsletter, and it includes a link to office hours. If you haven't gotten your link for office hours, just go to my website, hit the menu that says office hours, and it'll take you right in. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of wool light and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender A 50 tequila, in case I go on a bender My attorney's number, in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light
My hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream. My Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read. Some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A. And my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list.